This is Jocko Podcast number 303 with Carrie Helton and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Carrie. Good evening. Also joining us tonight is Dave Burke. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. So, Dave, I've been sitting on this for a while, sitting on this book for a while. I think, I, I think I've been sitting on it for almost a year. Almost a year I've been sitting on this book and I've been waiting for the right time to cover this book and I don't think there's a better time than right now. The reason that I don't think there's a better time than right now, you'll figure out as soon as I say the title of the book. The title of the book is On the Psychology on the Psychology of Military Incompetence. On the Psychology of Military Incompetence. And what does that mean? Well, one thing it means is as we look at military leaders, a lot of times people think, oh, this individual is in the military, they must be awesome. I mean, look, it happens 100% in the SEAL community. Oh, this guy was a SEAL? He must be of the highest character, must be an unbelievable leader, must be a great runner, right? <laughs> must be great at pull-ups and swimming, must be the best shot, right? So so people make assumptions about the SEAL teams. Oh, if you were a SEAL, then you must be able to survive at a minimum of 78 days with you know nothing but a loin cloth and uh, and a toothpick right that's that that's kind of you can you 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 you're picking up what I'm putting down right same thing happens with leadership you think oh well, this individuals in the in the military they made life and death decisions they must be incredible leaders and we can also attribute that to leaders in the past too oh this person was a general this person was you know, um, a military leader in the 1800s, in the 1600s, they must have b- military brilliance. Well, this book disputes that, not whole, not, not, not as a whole. And he makes a very important point. And I, I had this discussion with Jason Gardner the other day after the Afghanistan podcast. Jason's like, well, there's a lot of good leaders. And I said, yeah, there absolutely are. And I've worked for a lot of incredible leaders in the military. But to blanket all leaders in the military and say, oh, they were in the military, so they're awesome, is a bad move. And you can actually say, throughout history, there have been some really bad leaders, and it's relatively consistent that you get bad military leaders, bad senior military leaders. So this is something I was interested in. This book is written by uh, by a guy named Dr. Norman F. Dixon. And and I, I don't really remember where I originally heard about the book. It might have been one of the like uh, algorithmic recommendations. Which, do we hate the algorithm? Kind of, but sometimes we're a little bit stoked about the algorithm. So I, I might have been an algorithm. It might have been, uh, maybe somebody recommended it to me. But I look at it, and obviously I like the military. That's what this podcast is. We do all kinds of military subjects on this podcast. Obviously, I like psychology as well. And the much of the Jocko Underground podcast, we've covered a bunch of psychology. But when it comes to military stuff, I like military books that are written by military people, not books that are written by theorists or even historians and academics that haven't been there. So I don't normally like those kind of military books that are written by someone that was in the military. So I wasn't sure if this book would make the grade. Then I did some research, and here's the deal. The author, Dr. Norman Dixon, 
MBE, which is British like thing, most excellent order of British Empire, which you're given for your achievements in the arts and sciences. He received his doctorate in philosophy in 1956, doctor of science 1972, 1976 he was awarded Sorry, 1956. Did I say 1956, Doctorate in Philosophy? 1956, Doctorate in Philosophy. Doctor of Science, 1972. 1976, awarded the University of London Carpenter Medal for, quote, work of exceptional distinction in experimental psychology. Right? So the guy has some some clout. Bringing home some hardware. He's bringing home some hardware. He's a professor emeritus at of psychology at the University of University College of London. Authored other books besides this one. One's called Our Own Worst Enemy. Gotta like that title. Another one called Unconscious Processing. Another one called Subliminal Perception. So that's all impressive. Still wasn't sure if it made the grade, but what tied it all together for me is that prior to all this stuff that he did, he was in the British Army from 1940 till 1950, and that means he fought in World War II, was wounded in World War II, (laughs) wounded, and this is a quote, according to him, he was wounded, quote, largely through my own incompetence, which is, we at least, we're coming out of the gate with some humility, which is nice, but it gives, it means his perspective is, he has that perspective of a soldier, of someone that's fought, of someone that's been in combat, and he can overlay that on his academic knowledge. But the book is, I mean, you're gonna see real quick that this book is pretty, it's a pretty incredible book, and and I don't know how many podcasts we'll do on it. I'm assuming it'll be two, maybe three. Um, I don't know how much we'll even be able to get through, get through today. But with that, I'm gonna start off with the forward of the book which is written by a guy named Jeffrey Walrow. Hope I'm saying that right. If not, I apologize to Jeffrey Wayrow. Professor of Military History, University of North Texas, director of their Military History Center. And this is this is his his forward to the book. Which well, the reason I wanted to read the forward is because it starts to lay out the themes inside this book. And you start to get an understanding of where this guy's coming from. Anything? Make sense so far? Yep. This is a book that I was burning through highlighters. It's almost one of the books where you might as well just stop highlighting because you're highlighting everything. So here we go. The, the forward to Norm Dixon's On the Psychology of Military Incompetence. Norman Dixon's On the Psychology of Military Incompetence is a classic that should be read not because it is true in every detail, but because it offers the military historian, analyst, or student an important method to discover and rank the manifold reason for military error and defeat. That's a bold statement coming out of the gate. He's saying the manifold reasons for military error and defeat are found in this book. Coming out of the gate strong. And there's a couple notes in there, not true in every detail. The reason for that is the way the book is laid out. It covers a lot of historical battles and wars. And I think that I think that Dixon was sensitive being an academic about the way historians would read it and be like, well, actually that date is wrong. And so he's he covers that himself too and says, look, ballpark, we're in there. This is what happened. It's not and I didn't go and fact check everything, but 
ballpark, this is what happened. So it's not a historical reference, and he says that later. Continuing on, Dixon deploys psychological theory in a lucid, accessible way and applies it in several case studies spanning the 19th century and 20th centuries. He is in some ways constrained by chronology. The British officer types he scrutinizes are creatures of their age, Boris, conservative, and authoritarian. And this authoritarian piece that he's talking about, this may be the underlying theme of the book, this authoritarian attitude and and personality type and what it means and what it does to you and what it does to your people. Continue on. They went to stuffy boarding schools and endured tyrannical parents and school teachers. They enlisted in a class system that expected snobbish conformity. And yet the deeper you read into the book, the more you realize that the specific circumstances of a Raglan, Haig, Montgomery are less important than their lifelong enlistment in the military hierarchy that constrains and often warps behavior. And you can see he's starting to throw out names, Raglan, Haig, Montgomery. So that's what this book is. He's, he refers to individuals and shows what they did well, what they did bad. And he does cover good leaders as well. At the heart of this book is a thesis that all can accept. All human decision makers are victims of a chronic hazard. That emotion and motivation unconsciously distort and bias all thought and perception. <laughs> right? It's like crazy. This is what we talk about all the time. Detach from your emotions. You get distorted. What do what you write in, in e- ego clouds all decisions, right? That's what he's talking about. Man's needs, biological, social, or neurotic, act on his perception of the world around him and the decisions he makes. No one, in other words, operates cleanly. What a good thing to remember. No one operates cleanly. You all have it going on. I did the underground podcast a while back, and I talked about the fact that we're all insane. And that is something, the definition of insanity is that your world doesn't match reality. And the fact of the matter is, my world doesn't match your reality, Dave. I know we're probably pretty freaking close because we work in the same job, we have a similar background, but there's no way that you see things exactly the way I see it. Carrie, you and I have a similar background, but there's no way that we match up. Our realities don't match. So that means we're all insane. It's just a matter of what degree. And that means everyone you interact with is kind of insane. That means their reality is different than yours. So when you're in a leadership position, you're dealing with other people. Their reality is different than yours. So when you're making a decision and they hear that decision, their reality is different than yours. No one, in other words, operates cleanly. (laughs) Singleness of mind, a key ingredient of successful command is always under siege by doubt, worries, and distractions. We all churn through a sludge of life experiences that have formed us and left us with key strengths and weaknesses. The challenge for military commanders is all the greater because the stakes of their decisions are so high and because they operate in stressful environments amid hunger, fatigue, heat or cold, sleep deprivation, and the relentless ticking of the clock. Not for nothing did Napoleon call unforgiving time the grand element in warfare. 
which is epic because lately I've been talking about the, the, the leadership loop. And the number one thing I said you have to consider, the number one thing that's in the front of my mind all the time in any leadership situation is time. What is he called? The grand element. Time is what you have to think about. And sometimes the thought is, oh, we got plenty of time, which is cool. But you gotta think about that. People that don't keep time in front of mind, they're always behind. They're always behind. <clears throat> Bro, we're two paragraphs here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I almost said something. And Go I ahead. Go ahead. What do you got? I just, I always like hearing how these people write. And the word, like, this is a good writer. This yeah, guy writes yeah. well. Yeah. I don't even know and this, this is just the forward, bro. But the fact that he went through all those things, he was talking about heat, cold, and I don't even remember all the words. Uh, and when he got to time, he added the, the additional component of unforgiving. unrelenting. Yeah. Unforgiving Because time. the heat, we can, it, it, it can relent. Yeah. Or we've got maybe some technology that, that we're going to wear a coat or some cold weather. Like We can mitigate all these other things. But time is Unrelenting. There is no mitigation, and and that is that will be forever. Forever. Yeah. We're not gonna technology our way out of the time issue. Like, oh, we'll just slow time down. Like we can manage the heat and all those other elements. I just like the way they he adds that piece to it, and what's already like just a good the way he writes is awesome. That's why, as a leader and as a person, it has to be the number one thing you think yes. about. It's the only thing that will give you no no slack whatsoever. Right. No zero. That's it. It that clock is ticking. <clears throat> Dixon uses several case studies to el- elucidate military incompetence. He begins with the Crimean War, which Britain undertook in an era of rapid industrialization, prosperity, and commercial dominance. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't you think if you've got rapid industrialization, prosperity, and commercial dominance, you just go crush everyone on the battlefield? Wouldn't you think that? Victorian Britain was the last word in efficiency, Yet its military stumbled from one bloody disaster to the next, piling up 21,000 mostly avoidable dead. How could this be in view of Britain's world leadership? Much of it, Dixon finds, had to do with the command performance of 66-year-old Lord Raglan, an extreme introvert who died of severe depression during the campaign. Raglan drifted like a rudderless ship. The officers under him suffered a familiar dilemma. If they took matters into their own hands, they could be accused of insubordination. If they let the rudderless ship drift further, they could be accused of incompetence. That's a catch-22. Ultimately, nothing was done. And the British troops and taxpayers bore the brunt of their systemic and command incompetence, of which the notorious Charge of the Light Brigade was but the thin end of the wedge. Since authoritarian organizations, again, you're going to hear this word, and it took me a while to pick up on it, even though it's really obvious to me right now, this authoritarian attitude is, is like this underlying, one of the underlying themes throughout this. Since authoritarian organizations like the military are masters at shifting blame, the time-honored tactic of the cornered child, the British Army survived the fiasco of the Korean, Korean War unreformed. So they went through all that, 21,000 dead, who knows what the price tag was, n- no reforms. A major theme of this book is in the incorrigibility of military organizations. They must be removed from their pedestals, cracked open, and filled with daylight, which is another way of saying subjected to rigorous scrutiny and review. Unfortunately, they rarely are. 
Raglan's Folly, which made the Crimean War, in Dixon's judgment, the prototype for protracted military incompetence, was followed by the Boer War. Somehow, despite the similarities of the two campaigns fought far away for imperial interests, Britain applied no lessons learned from the Crimean campaign. London's performance in 1899 was even worse than 1855. It's, quote, military incompetence straining credulously to the breaking point. Indeed, the British officers took pride in their amateurness, their clubby good fellowship, and their conviction that any effort at self-improvement were bad form. I'm going to say that again. Imagine you're in a group of people where self-improvement is considered bad form. They clung to unhelpful routines like sand crabs clinging to seaweed in storm time. They battled gorillas on the South African veldt with luxuriant baggage, including pianos, gramophones, chests of drawers, polo mallets, and mobile kitchens and bathrooms. They're fighting against the Boers. Savages. <laughs> just just, getting just horrible. Yeah. General Redvers Buller commanded the expedition like Raglan. He was in over his head. He lacked command experience, imagination, and confidence. He was passive and defeatist. The Boers swept over him like a turret. He never stopped retreating, and the press nicknamed him Reverse Buller. (laughs) Field Marshal Douglas Haig's command in World War I is an obvious place to stop and relish the psychology of military incompetence. Since Dixon's book, there has been a vigorous debate about Haig for and against, but few would dispute that Haig's psychology had much to do with his, with his mediocre to abysmal performance as British Expeditionary Force Commander. He was an old cavalryman with an outmoded view of warfare. He'd been ruled as a boy by a stern religious mother. He was solitary, aloof, and inspired by an obsessive need for order and this is another one of those things that's sort of the authoritarian mindset you want everything to be organized you want everything to be in order and i'll, I'll say and i'm not a i'm not a super psychological nerd or a psychology nerd but he definitely dips into like the childhood stuff probably a little bit more than i would and the reason i think i don't dip as much into the childhood stuff is i've known people that had authoritarian parents and didn't end up like this right had whatever hyper-religious, strict parents and ended up, you know, in every level, every type of different person. I've known people that had total hippies for parents and let the kids do whatever they want, and I've seen those kids end up in different places on the spectrum. So I don't know if I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I correlate these things as, as much or put as much weight on the upbringing as Dixon does, but that's just me. It's interesting to know. Could be. It's definitely a contributing factor, depending on how your personality reacts to it. Because I mean, we, you, and I have kids, Dave. The kids are different. <laughs> like the kids are different. You could put them in a controlled environment with the exact same situation. Because you know, oh, well, the one's the middle child, and one's the oldest, and so oh, this, so that means you treat them differently. Well, even if you put them in a controlled environment, they got personalities, and that personality is going to come out. Um, 
so obsessive need for word it took him too long to grasp just how radically technology like machine guns and heavy artillery had changed warfare and rendered most of what he'd learned at staff college in the 1890s obsolete incredibly haig insisted to the end of the war that the battles he was engaged in were not quote normal warfare which is just a bizarre mindset like this this is a normal We'll get, we'll get back to normal. This is just happening right now. This is normal. That, that's, again, that reality versus mindset or perception. Like, yeah. this is reality. This, yeah. this is your normal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Then he hasn't figured that out. Negative. He's insane. Insane. Yeah. Worse, he gave his subordinates the singular gift of the authoritarian, defined by Dixon as t- a terrible, crippling obedience. Officers had to implement Haig's vague instructions. He left much in doubt because he was so unsure of himself or be replaced and disgraced. Haig's influence was awful. British officers under him were expected to attack and show, quote, offensive spirit, even against the most invincible defensive fire. This was to demonstrate, quote, pluck and, quote, dash and, quote, optimism. Can you even fathom that shit? You're in World War One, and my address to you, Dave, is like, hey, Dave, all right, listen, mate, what I want you to do is just, I want you to charge with all your heart and show that the, show the enemy that you've got some puck and some dash. By, by the way, yesterday you watched your entire battalion get mowed down, or your friend's battalion get mowed down. <laughs> to shelter in the trenches was to exhibit the disqualifying sin of pessimism. Dave, what's wrong, mate? What are you doing down there in the trench? Why don't you get up there? Go on. Go on, son. <laughs> it, it's the disqualifying. <laughs> like, it isn't like, hey, hey, let's let's pull Dave out of his funk here. It's like, oh, he's in, he, he's incapable of doing this because he's his behavior reveals that he's pessimist. pessimistic. Pessimistic about living. And this is a guy who you said, I think the quote was, took too long to recognize the impact of the machine gun. How many engagements with a machine gun yeah. do you need before you go, oh, yeah, things are different now. You don't even need one complete engagement, by yeah. the way. Yeah, you get you get one volley of fire, yeah. and you go, "Oh, shit, just changed." Yeah. Everybody, get back in the briefing room. <laughs> we need a new plan. Uh, All armies began the Great War like this, but only Haig kept it up until 1917, coldly firing officers who wouldn't follow his ghastly directives. Prudently dispatched from a chateau, dozens of miles behind the lines. Dixon's brilliant description of the military authoritarian fits Haig like a Savile Row suit. Superficial toughness and orderliness are, quote, a brittle crust of defense against feelings of weakness and inadequacy. The authoritarian keeps up his spirits by whistling in the dark. He is the frightened child who wears the armor of a giant. His mind is a door locked and bolted shut against that which he fears most himself. The imagery is outstanding here. (laughs) This guy is, yeah, he's hitting it on the head. All readers will appreciate the drift of Dixon's book, which might be summarized in George Bernard Shaw's wartime quip that, quote, the British soldier can stand up to anything except the British war office. Micromanaging and stifling of initiative are byproducts of the hierarchical military system. 
a yearning for old certainties like the horse and the battleship, even when tanks and aircraft carriers made them obsolete, is understandable only when psychology is deployed. There is unquestionably in any military, in any epoch, a prevailing culture of obedience and group loyalty, a deliberate process of military socialization. As two esteemed psychologists wrote in their 1989 work on the social psychology of authority, once the military culture of obedience is established by training and service, men are, quote, governed not so much by motivational processes, what they want, as by perceptual ones, what they see required of them. Dixon sees fear as the common denominator in the general psychopathology of military organizations. And this is interesting. Fear of a bad performance review. Not fear of getting shot, not fear of a machine gun, but fear of a bad performance review. Not surprisingly then, fear of failure overshadows hope of success leading to complacency, groupthink, and bad decisions. So if if I'm afraid of a bad performance review, I probably don't want to do anything. Right, I'm probably my my go-to is like I'm just going to sit here and we're not going to do anything. At best, I'm saying, well, if that's what Dave's doing, I guess we'll all get in trouble. Dave will get in trouble first, so I'll do what he's doing. Status quo. Yeah, status quo all day. Attacking the flaws in a military plan was as dangerous to an officer's career in 2003 as in 1901. Officers around Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and U.S. Central Command CENTCOM leader General Tommy Franks had to bite their tongues when even the most preposterous plans were floated. The same went for officers in Vietnam, pushing for a low-intensity counterinsurgency war as opposed to a high-tempo conventional one was not the way to get ahead in an army that had made firepower and mobility its mantra. Military organizations, Dixon tells us, can create incompetence, uniformity, and a graying hierarchy. The system all too often creates mediocrity as bright officers adapt to the plan and institutional priorities which are frequently at odds with reality and best practices. A recent example of this would be the U.S. Army's decision not to deploy large numbers of ground troops to capture or kill Osama bin Laden in 2001. He was trapped in eastern Afghanistan near the Khyber Pass. The army had only to cordon off his cave complex and escape routes with troops. But so insistent was Secretary Rumsfeld on keeping this force small in order to demonstrate the stripped-down power of the army and its expeditionary potential and to leave troops off-ramp for an invasion of Iraq that CENTCOM Commander Tommy Franks didn't insist on reinforcements nor would he have anyway nor would he have anyway for ta- frank for franks took pride in never contradicting the famously cantankerous rumsfeld in the clinch franks lacked moral courage and common failing among in- ingratiating authoritarians bin laden escaped and would remain at large for 10 more years Cognitive dissidence is another danger of the military organization. Memoirs from CENTCOM and Washington remind us that most clear-thinking officers recognized the failures of Rumsfeld and Franks even in real time, but felt compelled to keep silent. The one who didn't, Army Chief of Staff General Eric Shinseki, who insisted that massive numbers of U.S. troops would be needed to stabilize a defeated Iraq, 
was ridiculed and driven into retirement for the crime of speaking truth to power. This reinforces Dixon's point that it is not stupidity that leads to incompetence, but rather the dead hand of the authoritarian personality. Which is an interesting take. So he, he has to say that throughout the book because it's really easy just to say, oh, these guys were stupid. But they're not stupid. In many cases, they're f- really freaking smart. Military organizations all too often force their members to act incompetently. When asked by President George W. Bush to distinguish his views on the 9-11 wars from Rumsfeld's, General Tommy Franks weirdly replied, Sir, I think exactly what my secretary thinks, what he's ever thought, what he will think, or whatever he thought he might think. Given the dreadful stakes in the wars, this was incompetence on stilts. Franks, like General William Westmoreland, is a fine example of the Peter Principle, also referenced by Dixon, by which leaders are promoted beyond their capabilities to an unimagined level of incompetence and efficiency. So the Peter Principle says that, oh, Dave, oh, Dave did a good job as a squad leader. Let's make him a platoon leader. Oh, okay, did a good job as a platoon leader. Let's make him a company commander. Oh, he did a good job as a company commander. Let's make him a battalion commander. But he's not capable. So he's not capable, but that's his position. He's not competent in that position, but that's his position. And what you end up with is everybody promotes to, now you don't get promoted to brigade commander, but it doesn't matter, you're a battalion commander. Yeah. <laughs> so now we have a bunch, guess what all the other battalion commanders, or most of them, all the same thing. They're all promoted to their level of incompetence. Right. Of course, General Franks thought that he was being submissive and funny. He was speaking what Dixon calls throughout the book, bullshit. Keeping up appearances in this way is the essence of authoritarian structures, proving one's reliability even a bad, even in a bad cause. The internal politics of bullshit in war or peace inexorably become a substitute for incisive thinking. This decreases initiative and increases dependency. There is a huge irony for the pattern of modern warfare from Dixon's period to our own has been to require more and more independence and initiative as information and intelligence pass more quickly and in greater volume down the chain of command. So even though we've gotten worse and we become more authoritarian, the, f- the flow of information and the ability to maneuver and think for yourself has increased. So we're going in the wrong direction. Dixon forces us to reconsider the assumption that military organizations operate as effective teams. In fact, they are often anything but effective. The difficulties Britain's interwar reformers, JFC Fuller and Basil Liddell Hart, had in inducing the British Army establishment to, quote, thresh the grist from the chaff in conventional theories of war, as Fuller put it, are legendary. Fuller in the 1920s saw new technologies like the tank and the airplane as able to leap from the muscular warfare of the Great War to a faster, quicker, deadlier, less destructive, mechanized warfare that would administer quick, relative, bloodless, shot through the brain, not the interminable pounding with flesh and guns that had characterized World War I. So you had people after World War I that, and we've covered in great detail, B.H. Liddell Hart in this podcast. Hey, we don't need to do it that way. 
That way didn't make much sense. Liddell Hart in 1926 considered the British Army's problems of institutional rigidity and stuffiness so great that he equated it with illness, arguing for the Army's, quote, inoculation with the serum of mobility. The Army was unmoved, forcing gadflies like Liddell Hart into early retirement. God, (laughs) you know what? We don't really like what you're saying. Why don't you retire? Dixon's account of Liddell Hart lacks the more recent scholarship on the rather slippery British theorist, but he rightly cites that the captain as just the sort of man a military organization finds intolerable. Brash, bright, insightful, eloquent, and opinionated. That's who we don't like. That's who we don't want. We don't want someone that's bright, that's brash, that's insightful, that's eloquent, and opinionated. We don't want that person. It's a potent human being right it's there. It's a potent human yeah. being. It's, it's got to watch out for. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, maybe if Liddell Hart had read his own book and maybe taken a little bit more of an indirect approach on some of these things, he might have done a little bit better convincing the chain of command, right? 100%. He didn't get to read his own book. He didn't have that luxury, unfortunately for him, because he went hard. And told them they needed the, to be inoculated with the serum of mobility. That's a rough thing to say up the chain of command. You're telling your, your leadership they need to get inoculated. You, you need to completely change what you're doing. You need an inoculation. That's a, that's, a, that's a bold attack. That's a frontal attack. That's a direct attack. Nothing indirect about that. He became what? He became a prophet. He was a prophet. And what happens to prophet? He told us what happens to prophet. They get fired. They get stoned. They get stoned. They get crucified. crucified. That's what happens to prophets. And he was a prophet. And what happened to him? Got drummed out of the army. There seems to be a, a place where there's a transformation that happens where these, um, I, don't, I don't want to call them students, but th- these kind of rebels become the prophet though, right? Like where they're, it goes from a kind of a detached perspective to a... No, this is what needs to happen. Why won't you listen? You know, putting that kind of thought forward. I feel like they become, you know. If you start to get emotional, mm-hmm. which which can happen, especially when you've got lives at stake mm-hmm. or you're, you know, you just pointed to Hackworth's book. Hackworth reached a point where he, he was trying to persuade people and talking about how we should do it and did it with his own battalion and showed what the results were. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to do a counterinsurgency. We need to, we need to be not going head to head. We need to act like guerrillas. Right. We need to fight like guerrillas. He was doing that. And he was showing the results. But at a certain point, like you just said, you are correct. At a certain point, they say, you know what? We got to stop doing this. Mm-hmm. And they become a prophet. And they become a martyr. And Liddell Hart became a martyr and got drummed out of the army. Mm-hmm. David Hackworth became a martyr, got drummed out of the army. Whether that helped or not, didn't help immediately. Mm. Um, Liddell Hart's last act in uniform was to submit an essay on the mechanization of the army for a military competition. Liddell Hart lost to an essay titled Limitations of the Tank. (laughs) That's crazy, right? You can't make that up. You can't make that up. Little bit of irony there. (laughs) And they about to get blitzcraged like you read about. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They got blitzcraged straight up. That's what went down. Yep. 
On Britain's failure to embrace armored warfare in time to affect the fighting of 1940, Liddell Hart recalled, if a soldier advocates any new idea of real importance, he builds up such a wall of obstruction compounded of resentment, suspicion, and inertia that the idea only succeeds at the sacrifice of himself. As the wall finally yields to the pressure of the new idea, it falls and crushes him. So he, that's him saying he did become the martyr. Right. This is the process of military incompetence. Vested interests, bureaucratic turfs, defensive services, and uncertain leaders all contribute to a stifling of innovation and all too often a scapegoating of innovators. Inevitably, Dixon cites the great French statesman George Clemenceau in this context, quote, war is too serious a business to be left to the generals. <laughs> That's no joke. Fuller, who had commanded Britain's tank corps in World War I, later said fighting the Germans is a joke compared with fighting the British. The blimpish generals, conservatives of a dead military epoch, simply would not be budged. To be fair, there was no easy solution. Britain had to prepare for war simultaneously in Europe against the Germans and all across its empire against a range of potential enemies like Italy, Japan, and Indian or Palestinian nationalists. Tanks might work against the Germans, but they'd be acquired at the expense of the tools needed to fight the small wars around the fringes of the empire. That was no excuse for lethargy. Yet lethargy is precisely what flourishes in the world of the author- authoritarian, where vigorous debate and reform are interpreted as effrontery. Can't even debate. Can't even debate. We're not even having debates around here. And you can picture that authoritarian platoon commander. He doesn't want to hear a debate about the way we should do this mission. Doesn't want to debate about that. The authoritarian CEO of the company doesn't want to debate about how we're going to move into this new market area. He wants people to shut up and do what I told you to do. In France, Charles de Gaulle battled the same sort of establishment. He wanted a small professional army, highly mobile and leveraged with air power. His ideas broke against the power of the old sweats, like Generals Maurice Gamelin and Philippe Pétain, who looked back serenely on the victory of 1918 and saw the future as just an elaboration of that, not something new. Tanks, Pétain, characteristically snorted, are the Sancho Panzas, Two weighted down to fight. Sancho Panza is a character in uh, Don Quixote. He's like a comic relief, big fat guy that can't really fight. That criticism recalled Don Quixote himself, who told Sancho one fine day, too much sanity may be madness, and maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. And of course, there was no more twisted authoritarian than Joseph Stalin, who literally destroyed the reforms of Marshal Mikhail Turkachevsky. Turkachevsky's deep battle idea might have made the Red Army as formidable as the Germans in time for World War II. It called for, quote, linked and simultaneous destructive operations and, quote, mechanized operational warfare carried on the backs of tanks. Stalin killed Turkachevsky and all of his acolytes in the purge of 1937. Got some good ideas? Whatever. 
The general had studied the Germans too closely. He appeared threatening and suspicious to Stalin, to Stalin precisely because of his restless mind and broad professional circle, the two things that should have made him a fine model officer, not a criminal. The army that survived the purges was a scarcely improved version of the clumsy peasant force of World War I. It would perform about as well in its early campaigns. Imagine you're France and you get done with World War I and you're like, what do we need to change? <laughs> we won. And, you know, the Germans were like, we lost. What can we change? Maybe if they would have won, they wouldn't, wouldn't have changed what they did. Wouldn't have come up with the Blitzkrieg. Speaking of which, for the victors of World War I, the victory proved intellectually crippling. Old weapons mean old tactics, and whereas the Germans were plucked clean of weapons in 1919 and forced to begin anew with tanks and aircraft, the victorious allies clung to what had worked, infantry, artillery, and field fortifications, which reached their apogee with the Maginot Line. All of this reinforced a military tendency to do nothing. Nothing was safer in the crabbed minds of these men than the risk of failed ventures. To Dixon's mind, it is the military authoritarian's lack of emotional maturity that makes him or her so dangerous to the organization, even one seated liberally with other authoritarians. Passive, dependent, insecure, they are, in Dixon's word, frightened children in the army, in the armor of men. The worst mischief happens when they are promoted to supreme command, not because they overreach, but because they have risen to that rank by obeying orders. Suddenly, with no one above them, they become unmoored, which is a scary thing, right? Who gets promoted? I'm promoting the person that obeyed me. If I'm an authoritarian, who's getting promoted? That's the way I should have framed that question. I'm promoting the person that obeyed me. I'm definitely not promoting Dave Burke that asked me a bunch of questions every time I put out some word. I'm definitely not promoting Carrie, who's you know got some comment at the end of my briefing that seems a little bit undermining. You're not getting promoted, neither you. I got a yes man over here getting promoted. They compensate for, their, for this weightlessness with procrastination with more bullshit or busy work and a retreat into familiar routines and habits in battle, they might waste their men or suffer a paralyzing compassion for them. And you're the, the, like, uh, I don't know, in the Navy, or maybe I'm getting this from Hollywood, I don't know. No, I think it's from the Navy. We called, um, you know, polishing your boots chicken chicken shit stuff right do you guys have anything like that in the marine corps definitely have that term okay would you would you apply the term chicken shit to polishing boots to pressing your uniform to starching your eight-sided cover doing things that you know mean nothing okay yeah chicken shit marine corps carry confirm so um, Disconfirm? negative i i we didn't use chicken shit uh and okay. younger my era. generation yeah yeah New core. Yeah. yeah. You guys called it chicken poo. Chicken poo. <laughs> <laughs> Poultry. Yeah. Uh, but that's a real thing. So what's interesting is he goes into this and says, you know, if I don't know what to do with Dave, like I'm not sure what, what guess what I do. Yeah, but you need to polish your boots. Yeah. That's the distinction. 
Because as I was saying that, I was like, hey, the message isn't like, you don't need to shine your boots or have a good looking uniform because that stuff doesn't matter. Actually, that stuff does matter. But that stuff matters in a different, much like when we hear what Hackworth's rules were. Hey, here's what we're going to do. Here's why we're going to do it. Here's the reason why those things are important. As opposed to, if I got to dole out a punishment and I got to make you do stuff with your time that it's a complete and total waste of time, that's what the term, my recollection of maybe a generational mm-hmm. thing is like, what are we doing? We're sitting around, um, we're going to... Uh, uh, um, what do we do? The strip the wax floors? the floor. Yeah, thank you. We're gonna floors. strip and wax the floors again. Why? You can tell I was an enlisted. There guy. you go. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that strip and wax some floors. Son. Yeah, that's the distinction right there. You know, and there's this fam- There's a meme out there now. It's this famous picture. It's a picture of a marine, um, with like a squeegee, like squeegeeing the you know, the the parade deck in a rainstorm. Yeah, I got it. Just get Check. some. Yeah. Yes, we did have a, a green weenie. Was the go to? You're getting the green weenie there. Was, was what we'd call that, yeah. yeah, right. So I mean, yeah. Uh, but another thing, he he was talking about kind of the hallmark or the I don't know freaking um, sentiment in this authoritarian regime. Um, he said lethargy mm-hmm. and paralyzation, and there's this type of language that that kind of punishment doling out does to troops. That it's just this. I don't even care. Like, I just don't. I don't care. You know, and that's kind of that chicken shit or mm-hmm. green weenie vibe that you get when that's the kind of kind of leadership. History is littered with such examples. General George McClellan was paralyzed by his vast responsibilities as Lincoln, Lincoln's general-in-chief. General Ludwig Benedek had excellent chance to destroy the Prussian army in 1866, but he didn't dare. General General Bazaine stood with a concentrated French army between widely separated German armies in 1870, but failed to strike in any direction, effectively permitting the Prussians to unite their armies and win the Franco-Prussian War. One historian accurately described Haig's command in World War I as a, quote, floating helpless whale. So slow was Haig's, so slow was Haig to issue detailed direct instructions to his subordinate commanders and solve the problem of the German defensive fire. Officers with General Maurice Gamelin, who commanded the French army in May 1940 when German panzers knifed across the Meuse, described Gamelin as, quote, stricken by a dull and pervasive fear, end quote. Instead of leading a counterattack against the Nazi invaders, the French general sat passively in army headquarters at Vincennes. A colleague there described him thus, quote, he was like a submarine without a periscope, end quote. U.S. General John Lucas landed on undefended beaches at Anzio 1944, yet fearfully dug in instead of thrusting to Rome, giving the faraway Germans time to react and circle him and lengthen the war. Man, that 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 fear of making a call. That's every one of those examples. Is just I'm afraid to make a call. The best generals, Dixon concludes, have been the Mavericks, leaders like Erwin Rommel, Horatio Nelson, and Napoleon Bonaparte. Men who had the intelligence and confidence to resist and roll back the negative psychology of the military organization. Unfortunately, the average general is not this sort of man. Dixon notes that military leaders are often chosen for their affability or appearance. Like General Buller, 
big-boned, square-jawed, or General Neil Ritchie at Tobruk, a great air of decisiveness. But the bluff appearance too often masks doubt and pessimism. As T.E. Lawrence would say in the same context, too much body and too little head. You know what's interesting about this is I was talking to somebody um, at an event I was just at, and there's a certain military, like a military bearing, right? We use that term military bearing. People can utilize military bearing, and you see leaders do this in the military all the time. They utilize military bearing as a, it's like a defensive mechanism. You know, you talk like this, you put the word out, you, 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 you fur your brow a little bit, and you say, no, this is what we need to get done right now. And, and they get good at it. They become brow beaters, but they're so good at it that people are like, well, I mean, okay. I mean, that's, yeah, they kind of back off and, and becomes a technique. So it's beyond just the way that they look, but they start to learn how to act that's gonna just kind of allow them to sort of get away with either not doing something or doing something that doesn't make sense. They just kind of, you know, drop their voice a little bit and, and sort of, you know, stand up straight, get that posture going, and look someone in the eyes and say, you, you, you need to stand down. So Dave Burke raises his hand and says, hey boss, I'm wondering if we should worry about that high ground. Hey, Burke, you need to worry about what you need to worry about. And people get good enough at that little act that Burke submits, right? Because you're asking an honest question, but you're not quite, it's an earnest question. You're, not even, you're, you're asking a real question, and I come at you with the, hey Burke, you don't need to worry about that. You need to stay in your lane. I got this covered. And your response is like, oh, okay, you know, Roger that. That plus seniority. Oh, yeah. <laughs> plus a little bit of little. rank or whatever on the collar there. I mean, that's. That'll shut down all kinds of pushback. Shut down. Shut down all shut kinds of down. pushback. Yep. Is that how you operated, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you see that. I. I I call that browbeating. Do you guys ever heard that term before? Browbeating? Yeah, I call that browbeaters. And there's plenty of leaders that that that's their leadership style. That they, you know, they could write a book if they were to try and write leadership strategy and tactics. It would just be called like leadership through browbeating. And they could go through. Listen, when someone starts asking you a question, first of all, you need to elevate your voice a little bit. You need to elevate your voice just a little bit so they know. You need to furrow your brow, which I'm a pro at. Right? I got a. I was born with a furrowed brow. You could furrow your brow. Elevate, you know, get your posture a little bit more rigid so they can see that you're not backing down. Raise your voice and speak in very direct tones. Burke, look, you need to worry about your part of the mission. And that, like you said, that shuts stuff down. That's the frequency right there. Yeah, That's just the right one. in there. Yep. Right in there. Right in there. It's interesting. PID'd. I just PID'd a thing, right? I've been seeing that quite a bit lately, too. Without a sharp and adaptable mind, the incompetent general succumbs to cognitive dissidence, rejecting or ignoring unpalatable news or intelligence. General Arthur Percival at Singapore was this type, simply refusing to credit that the Japanese attack his fortified island base. We, we ran through that on this podcast. That guy's getting reports. Hey, the Japanese are literally surrounding us. He's like, eh, they're not going to attack. To explain the average general, Dixon has to resort to ego psychology. The average general, like so many 
average men and women is trapped in the neurotic paradox. And here's the neurotic paradox. The need to be loved leads to twin quests for admiration on the one hand and power and fame on the other. So you wanna be liked, but you wanna be powerful. And so you got this thing going on all the time. Naturally, the two quests collide violently. More power means that more people dislike or envy you. The great leaders rise above the paradox by performing competently and taking praise, promotion, and criticism in mature, measured stride. Like, like Kipling's ideal man, they, quote, meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. But most of Dixon's subjects, and the reason, look, Dixon concentrates on the bad. So that's when he says most of Dixon's subjects, he concentrates on the bad. He doesn't concentrate on the good leaders. There's plenty of books about good leaders out there. Most of Dixon's subjects, like most of our own, are not great, but merely ordinary, weak, and often petty, hence the need to understand and apply the psychological component of history. Dixon's book is in two parts. The first presents the case studies, the second the psychological behaviors such as snobbery and anti-effeminacy, which contribute to institutional languor. In every man, an earthy, hungry id battles with an intelligent, tactful ego overseen by a watchful superego. This is good. Man, Dixon writes, is basically a battlefield, a dark cellar in which a well-bred spinster lady and a sex-crazed monkey are forever engaged in mortal combat, the struggle being refereed by a rather nervous bank clerk. (laughs) That's what's going on in your head. This is the fate of every human. Excellence, mediocrity, or incompetence hinge on how smoothly the monkey, the spinster, and the bank clerk settle their differences. Reading about older wars, one might suppose that modern times deliver more modern officers. That the Victorian parenting and grim public schools that form Dixon's case studies are relics of an irrelevant past. Not true. American parenting and high schools have apparently contributed no less to military incompetence. Consider the record. In World War I, General John Blackjack Pershing had to fire two American Corps commanders, six division commanders, and 1,400 brigadiers, colonels, and other officers for incompetence. This was remarkable carnage considering that America fought for just six months in that war. Damn. George C. Marshall, who served as a colonel on Pershing staff in World War I and then presided over the U.S. Army in World War II as chief of staff, was anything but incompetent. Marshall was, in many ways, the, modern, the model general. Sound in mind and body, he wrote in 1920 that an ideal officer was of, quote, the optimistic and resourceful type, quick to estimate, with relentless determination, and possessed, in addition, a fund of sound common sense which operated to prevent gross errors due to rapidity of decision and action. For Haig, optimism, and that's the World War I general, for Haig, optimism had been an abstract and silly concept. The spiritual willingness to always to attack. For Marshall, it was a human concept. The spiritual inclination to see a glass as half full to find a way around difficulties and win in spite of them. That's a big difference. Haig thinks optimism is you just go. Marshall's optimism is you figure out a way to win. It's a big freaking difference. You've been warning people for a little while now, and I've been stealing this about 
the idea of lessons learned actually being a problem. There's some risk in there. Mm-hmm. As we fight against bias, you've talked about bias on underground. You, you talk about bias in a lot of different ways and certainly on the leadership consultancy side when we're talking to people about ways to make sure that you don't run into problems in the future, lessons learned can actually contribute to making mistakes in the future because you will pull these lessons thinking somehow that it it sort of predetermines the next outcome. If the situation is the same, we know what the lessons are, we're going to apply those lessons, we're going to control the outcome. And there's a little part of me just really struggling to hear hearing you read this. And yes, there's some hindsight being applied here, but but how, how do you look at World War One and reflect on that and say, we won? Yeah. When, when you when you like barely didn't lose and you could play semantics all day long yes i know we won compared to the germans who lost but in in a sense that this is a this is a validation of the tactics that we employed this is a this is a, the lesson learned of what we did work because we won and the idea that we can take that and capture this as a as a reinforcement that the things that we did were the right things that's why we were successful and setting in stone again there's a lot of hindsight here. I understand that. I mean, looking forward, of nobody knew in 1919 what was going to happen in 19, you know, the 1940s. It, there was, we have that understanding now. But even in that time, how do you look at that war and reinforce that what we did was the right thing when you're on the quote winning side? It's, it's, it's insane. It's insane. It's insane. <clears throat> we won. Yeah, we won. Let's do it again harder. Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, sarcastic favorite (laughs) jujitsu coaching calls is, oh, Carrie, that arm lock's not working. Do it harder. I've heard it. (laughs) I've heard it. (laughs) Marshall also insisted on flexibility of mind to nullify authoritarian tendencies. He blocked the rise of time servers and other mediocrities. Marshall called them calamity howlers for the way they exaggerated difficulties and spun excuses for their failures and noted that such leaders inexorably demoralized their units and infected them with negativity man exaggerating your difficulties of the 42 senior generals who took part in the u.s army's last maneuvers before pearl harbor only 11 would command units in combat in world war ii that's freaking savage That is savage. They were firing some people. The rest had to be fired or sidetracked as dead wood. Dozens of American generals would lose their posts in the course of the war. To officer an American army that expanded 35-fold in three years, Marshall put every candidate through his paces, shifting them into ever more burdensome and pressure-packed jobs, promoting those who excelled. Those who fail, Marshall grimly noted, are out at the first sign of faltering. Which is interesting to me. I thought I immediately thought to myself, "Oh, so that's zero de- zero defect, right?" So now we're scared. But then I, it it doesn't say failing; it says faltering. It means when the time to step up came, you might have made a bad decision. Okay, well you're okay. But if you faltered, I don't know what to do. You're out later. That's a huge difference. Maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into that, but I'll go with it. <laughs> it's a pretty specific word to choose there, though. Yeah. Falter, yep. right? Not Faltering. fail. Not fail. Not you know. Marshall was the exception who proved the rule. By 1944 and 1945, the United States enjoyed massive superiority over the Germans in men, tanks, guns, and aircraft, yet plotted into Germany. 
the dynamism of 1941 to 1943 when Dwight D. Eisenhower and Marshall had pruned the dead wood and shot younger officers up the ladder was replaced with an emphasis on methodical teamwork that would harness America's material superiority. It was like war by General Motors with a risk-averse corporate strategy more concerned not to lose than to win swiftly. This was precisely the attitude that shaped the post-war U.S. Army and Korea in Korea and Vietnam. Officers could no longer be relieved for cause as that would generate embarrassing publicity and congressional inquiries, so they were often left in their jobs. 70-year-old Douglas MacArthur, who commanded the Korean War from Tokyo, possessed every trait of Dixon's most encourageable authoritarian and committed every possible error, nearly precipitating an American defeat and World War III. In Vietnam, General William Westmoreland's disastrous leadership was initially viewed with great hope. Westy succeeded a string of incompetents who had misconstrued the war and given the South Vietnamese relentlessly bad advice on how to win. First, Samuel Hanging Sam, Will- Hanging Sam Williams, then Lieutenant Colonel, or sorry, then Lionel Splithead McGar, then Paul Has- Harkins, the last derided by Defense Secretary Robert McNamara as, quote, not worth a damn. Westmoreland was supposed to be different, but he proved the perfect military incompetent, dim, blinkered, unsure of himself, lost and unmoored as a commander. He had actually refused to hire Vince Lombardi as coach of the Army football team when he was superintendent of West Point in 1960. Quote, this was not the kind of man I wanted around cadets, Westy said of Lombardi. His game plan in Vietnam would be no shrewder. One might ask how it could be otherwise. The Vietnam War was directed by a particularly vexing, incompetent General Maxwell Taylor the ultimate pleaser who, as presidential military advisor, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then ambassador to South Vietnam, flattered first John F. Kennedy and then Lyndon, John, Lyndon B. Johnson into believing that they could eat their cake and have it too, that is, fight the Vietnam War with limited means and public support and still win it. And I read that, not great. Limited means and public support. He's saying limited means and limited public support and still win it. Like the military and civilian advisors gathered around George W. Bush in 2003, Taylor was obsessed with White House access and was willing to suppress conflicting opinions to conceal stubborn facts to keep it that way. On the ground in Saigon, Westmoreland rather too eagerly brought Taylor's fraudulent talking points to life. And Westy, after all, was just the sort of average Joe who got his ticket punched in the U.S. Army of the 1960s. He'd never been to staff or war college, only to a cook's and baker's school, and then a 13-week management course at Harvard. He never read, so Harvard Business School formed him into a McNamara-like organization man, all charts and graphs, the PowerPoint general avant la lettre. I didn't know what avant la lettre means. I had to look that up. means he was a PowerPoint general before there was such a thing as a PowerPoint general. <laughs> Literally means before the letter. His search and destroy strategy was an unmitigated disaster, not least because of the destroying went on in the south, not in the north of Vietnam. Westy doggedly shelled, bombed, burned, and poisoned hundreds of villages, succeeding mainly in increasing the number of insurgents and losing support of the South Vietnamese people. The United States dropped twice as many bombs on allied South Vietnam as on the enemy North. More bombs, in fact, than have been dropped in all theaters in World War II. 
Westmoreland's mantra was firepower. Like Dixon's incompetence, he hid in the only thing that he, an artilleryman, knew. A man intending to lose a war could hardly have done it with more efficiency. That's a freaking rough assessment. The fact that his civilian commanders were no more acute in their judgment in no way excused his incompetent strategy. He was relieved in 1968. The Iraq War reprised the Vietnam incompetence with the incurious, unassertive Tommy Franks succeeded by General Ricardo Sanchez, who one historian labeled the William Westmoreland of the Iraq War. Sanchez had leaped from division to army command and was the embodiment of the Peter Principle. As a State Department onlooker said of him, all trees, no forest, not a strategic or political thought. When General David Petraeus took over in 2007, he introduced effective counterinsurgency strategy, but too late to prevent the dissolution of Iraq into sectarian fragments or to buttress plummeting American support for the war. Senator Chuck Hagel asked the marvelously prophetic question about Petraeus's troop surge. Quote, what, if the, what is the point of bringing the violence down? with U.S. troops if it will merely resume once the U.S. troops are withdrawn. Hagel had served as a grunt in Vietnam. He knew military folly when he saw it. Nixon's detailed case study ends in 1944, but he has a go at more recent history in the last chapter, surveying the martial lunacy of Vietnam and the the staggering irrationality of the Bay of Pigs invasion, clearly implying that there is no end of military incompetence. And indeed, the military ineptitude displayed in the decades since Vietnam most shatteringly in the Iraq War shows that military incompetence and its psychological roots cry out for continued study and application. This book is a template and deserves its classic reputation. On the psychology of military incompetence is also a vital corrective to what we are experiencing today the uncritical adoration of veterans, troops, and their officers by the American public, and more ominously, by presidential candidates in Congress. Living as we do in an age of nonstop semi-war, the need for clear, unsentimental thinking is more important than ever. It has become routine for candidates running for commander-in-chief to describe their global strategies thus, quote, I would check with my generals and follow their advice, end quote. Dixon jerks us back to reality with our civic responsibilities. What if the general or admiral is an incompetent authoritarian, blind to the true situation, leading the country into a ditch? What if the general is a well-masked authoritarian type who cannot learn from experience, who denies, rationalizes, deflects blame, and creates scapegoats, the last usually, quote, the folks in Washington? Indeed, what deficient American commander has not made this his swan song, quote, at least in blank, I knew who the enemy was. Here in Washington, I don't, end quote. A failed Iraq war commander was the last to try that wheeze, an old perennial that bloomed during Korea and Vietnam too. Read this book, absorb its lessons, and you will be on your guard against this infantilization to revere the uniform without first peering inside. Indeed, Dixon cites, a path-breaking Swiss child psychologist in this regard, quote, the adult who is under the dominion of unilateral respect for the elders and for tradition 
is really behaving like a child. And that was just the foreword of this book. <laughs> uh, that's Jeffrey Walro. And this he wrote that in 2016, or that's when this edition is. I got an older edition too. You know, I got the old school hardcover one because you know that's how I roll. Because I know when we when we when this podcast comes out, people can go out and buy those those old school ones. I already got mine. I tried to get as many off as I could off the market. <laughs> we roll into now into Dixon's preface. And he starts this off, and I probably could have, I probably could have, and probably should have started off this whole podcast with this note that he makes out of the gate. He says, "This book is not an attack upon the armed forces, no, upon the nor upon the vast majority of senior military commanders who, in time of war, succeed in tasks which would make the running of a large commercial enterprise seem like child's play by comparison." So, I should have started the podcast with that because let's face it, they're they're going to go hard in the paint. We're already feeling that. And, and it can be very easy to think that any critique of the leadership of these wars or uh, people in leadership positions specifically, it, it can be very easy to interpret this as shots at those people. But really, and I think this is what's going to be done in the book too, is it's going to be more a breaking down of these um, leadership, you know, failing leadership tactics and, and you know, leadership r- r- uh, roles or you know, how these guys are, are doing it more so than these guys themselves. You know what I mean? Am I close there? Unfortunately not. No. <laughs> Dixon it, it goes, goes hard, hard in the paint. Oh, Dixon man. goes hard in the paint. He's, he's just straight calling these guys he, out. These guys are going to get called out. Okay. Well, based on his note there in the preface, it yeah. sounded like he was going to go a little different direction. But he's going hard. Yeah, he goes hard. He goes hard. There's no punches. Roger probably. that. And but he but and he doesn't spend as much time. He does. He does talk about some of the good military leaders, mm-hmm. uh, but he spends most of his time talking about the bad military leaders right and on. how just bad they were and why they were bad and the mistakes that they made. And it wasn't like, well, you know, he was really making a good decision based on the information he had. It's like, no, <laughs> no, he wasn't. Right. He was, you know, we're going to get to some stories that make you sick to your stomach. Oh, shit. Some of these stories will make you sick to your stomach. And, and you know, Dixon served in World War II. Dixon was wounded. Right. Like, this guy knows what's up. He's probably had some incompetent leaders Mm -hmm. so he's gonna go hard but and look I served with incredible leaders in the military incredible leaders incredible individual I don't know if there could be better leaders than some of the leaders I served with in the military so this book isn't an attack on the armed forces or all leaders neither am I and that's not what we're doing here but there are some bad seeds and we need to learn from that because there's some legit things you can do to take corrective measures and watch out for this especially if just like everything else if you aim this book at yourself if you aim this book at yourself and you every time I hear author every time I say authoritarian theme instead of thinking like about your boss or about some subordinate leader that you have if you instead think oh how am I authoritarian because that doesn't oh I do that oh I lean in that direction if you start thinking like that right now that's that's the benefit that's what you should be trying to do Pretty much wiped out half my page of notes here. <laughs> did I just did I just jack your notes? No, it's legit, man. I kept I you know like I've said this a thousand times. I get to, the coolest part about being on this podcast is I hear this stuff 
in person live for the first time. Did you order this book when I told you to order it like a year ago? Yes. We, but you've been sending me screenshots of thi- like you've been dabbling with this thing for a while. I've known oh, this thing's coming, yeah. so it's cool. But it's still mostly brand new. Like the mm-hmm. this is all new, and I get to write stuff down. Mm-hmm. And part of it is just try to think about how this makes sense in my own head. And I wrote down like five minutes ago. There's a lot of risk with this book, and the risk, as I'm listening to you, is that it's going to be a validation for the listeners that there's a bunch of other screwed up people out there and they're the problem. Oh, and the other it, people. The other people. Yep. And what I wrote down, I go, you mitigate that risk by this by assuming this guy is talking to you. Mm-hmm. Not about other people. Mm-hmm. He's talking about you. And the risk that you are a reflection of those behaviors. And the only other thing I wrote down that, that I was thinking about in sort of anticipation of this is that it's not just these individuals as flawed as they are. And I'm glad that we're, we are... I'm glad all of us are taking a minute to go, hey, listen, this is not just us taking shots at all these people in the military to be yeah. be critical of them. Because leading is hard, the military is hard, and I, there's a whole bunch of reasons. But there are flawed individuals. The other piece that compounds that for this, which is, again, something we can all think about, is that there is a system that promotes that, that validates that, that reinforces that, that helps create and take the worst of these behaviors and magnify them. Yep. And... Does your company, does your team, does your family, does your household, does your business do the exact same thing? Yeah. And just to add one more little thing that that you said, which is 100% right. You're right. The military can, in many ways, take these people with these tendencies and promote them. It can do that. It also, even prior to that, attracts these people. Because, you know, the authoritarian person likes... likes, um, Things to be controlled, likes uniformity. Where, where, you, you know, if you're if you're a, a, a in college and you like uniformity and you're looking at your your dorm room going, gosh, I wish everyone would just be quiet at night. Yeah. You're like, oh, you know, I'm gonna join them. I'm gonna join the military. Yeah. The idea of rank to oh, that person, yeah. exciting. You mean you mean to tell me? Yep. I put this on and, and people, people will listen. To people me. will listen to me. They'd have to do what I say. I'm in. Oh, yeah. so the it, idea of, of <laughs> uniformity. Is not a bad thing. It's an it's an attractive thing that we literally wear a uniform. That attribute is a positive in so many ways for those of us interested in the military. So just to both of what you're saying, that idea like, oh, those things you go, man, I don't want a bunch of yes men uniform thinking, you know, uh, uh, group think. Actually, uniformity is hailed as a positive attribute in many ways across the military. So much so like 100%. the more you look like the person next to you, the better you are. Yes. Hey, yes. that uniform looks exactly like this regulation. You're my guy. Yeah, you think about who's getting attracted to this. Look, do you get guys, men and women that are patriotic, men and women that want to challenge, men and women that want to take care of their people and lead? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You do. Like You get all kinds of people. Do you get someone that just wants to put that rank on and finally get listened to? Lieutenant Cali, right? Totally. In Nam, they, you know, you do read the backstory on Lieutenant Cali from the, from the My Lai Massacre. It's like, oh, he was... No one respected him in his life. He had to go through OCS a bunch of times. He wanted that freaking rank so bad. It was probably like the most rewarding thing he ever got was to get that, finally get that rank and people would just shut up and listen to me. So that's what you're, that's what you're attracting. So we are you doing that in your company? What kind of people are you attracting into your company? Scary. It is, however, an attempt to explain how a, min- a minority of individuals 
come to inflict upon their fellow men depths of misery and pain virtually unknown in other walks of life. That's a freaking heavy sentence. Like that's true. Like hey, if you're in business and you're an authoritarian, okay, cool. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna drive some people crazy, whatever, right? When you're in the military, you're causing depths of misery and pain virtually unknown in all other walks of life. This book involves the putting together of contributions from a great many people, historians, sociologists, psychologists, and of course, soldiers and sailors. It is hoped that none of these will feel misrepresented in the final picture which their contributions make. For errors of fact and for the opinions expressed, I alone take full responsibility. Okay, he's taking some ownership. In the writing of this book, I also owe a great debt of gratitude to all those who gave generously of their time to reading and discussing earlier drafts. Their encouragement, criticisms, and advice have been invaluable. And he goes on to thank about a freaking page and a half of people. Names, 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 names. Um, And then finally he gets to this part. And and by the way, one thing that's interesting that you couldn't have predicted is this guy's really funny. He's got that dry British humor humor throughout the entire book, and he's awesome. So he brings the heat. Now you know you, you Carrie's like, I'm sure he's not, you know, taking shots. Oh, he's taking shots. <laughs> not only is he taking shots, but some of them are pretty damn yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. So he says this, he says, Finally, I owe a debt of gratitude to that handful of people who would probably prefer to remain nameless whose hostility and dismay that anyone should write a book on military incompetence provided considerable, if unlooked for, confirmation of the relationship between militarism and human psychopathology. <laughs> so like all you people are like, you shouldn't write a book like that. Exactly, you're the reason why. <laughs> I love that. You are the reason why. <sighs> so that's his opening. Um, now we get into chapter one. Like I said, this is going to be a slow roll with this book. Um, he starts off with a quote. At least it's a really short book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clausewitz. Um, we only wish to represent things as they are and to expose the error of believing that a mere bravo without intellect can make himself distinguished in war. And bravo can be used as a noun, I found out after reading that quote. It means someone that's like uh, a daring man. Daring man isn't good enough. By now, most people have, been, have become accustomed to, one might almost say, blasé about military incompetence. Like the common cold, flat feet, or the British climate, it is accepted as part of life. Faintly ludicrous, but quite unavoidable. Surely there can be nothing left to say about the subject. He's coming out of the gate. Look, yeah, military incompetence, whatever. It's the way it is. It's like flat feet. Some people got it. In fact, military incompetence is largely preventable, tragically expensive, and quite absorbing segment of human behavior. It also follows certain laws. That's a bold statement. The first intimation of this came to the writer during desultory reading about notorious military disasters. These moving, often horrific accounts evoked a curious deja vu experience, for there was something about these apparently senseless goings-on which sent one's thoughts along new channels, making contact with phenomena from quite other, hitherto unrelated contexts, and then back again to the senseless facts. Not now quite so senseless until gradually a theme continuous as a hairline crack could be discerned throughout the stirring tales of daring do. That was a big sentence. What's he saying in that? 
What he's saying is he started reading about all these military disasters. And as he read them, he would think about another one and he'd think about another one. And what he started to see was a thread that connected them all together. If this pattern was real and it meant what it seemed to mean, certain predictions would follow. These were tested and found correct. Yet other pieces began falling into place until gradually the mosaic of elements took on the semblance of a theory. This book is about that theory. It is concerned with placing aspects of military behavior in the context of general psychological principles. This sounds fine, a cheerful marriage of history and psychology. Unfortunately, however, such a union may not be entirely agreeable to some of potential in-laws. Judging from the attitude of some historians, putting together of psychology and history is, to say the least, bad form, while putting together of psychology and military history is positively indecent. There are at least two reasons for this anxiety. The first is that since there are few things more annoying than having one's behavior explained, there exists a natural distaste for explanations of historical figures with with whom one perhaps identifies. So he's saying, look, I'm going to write this book. It's about psychology and it's about military history and that's not gonna be popular because a lot of people relate to those military figures, those historical military figures. And when you start talking about why they made those decisions, some people are gonna get offended by that. So that's the first reason why this is a a risky book. The second reason is a distrust of reductionism of the idea that anything so complex as a military disaster could possibly be reduced to explanations in terms of the workings of the human mind, and this by a psychologist of all people. So well, you're gonna tell me all this stuff took place and it was because this dude you know, had a weird psychology about something, that's what we're gonna say? In answer, one can only say that has, of course historians know more about history than do psychologists. Of course, historical events are determined by a complex set of variables, political, economic, geographical, climactic, sociological, but ultimately history is made by human beings and whatever other factors may have contributed to a military disaster, one of these was the minds of those who were there and another the behavior to which these minds gave rise. So there's all kinds of things that are playing into these disasters. And yes, uh, uh, the, the climate and the, ge- the geography and the economics, all those things are playing into it. But you also had these human beings' minds. And how did their minds end up that way? Now these are complex variables. Hence it has been necessary to play down the other factors in order to focus more clearly upon the psychological determinants. Consider the anomalous case of aircraft accidents. Dave Burke, glad you're here. Nobody would deny that aeroplanes crash for a number of different reasons, sometimes working independently, sometimes in unison. But this does not mean that the selecting out for particular study of a single factor such as metal fatigue necessitates dwelling on other such variables as bad weather, indifferent navigation, or too much alcohol in the bloodstream of the pilot. So just because the the pilot was drunk doesn't mean you can't look at the metal fatigue that it put on the wings. The case for a reductionist approach, however, also rests upon other considerations, namely that the nature of military incompetence and those characteristics which distinguish competent from incompetent senior commanders have shown a significant lack of variation over the years despite changes in other factors which shape the course of history. So 
You see failure, 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 all these different failures. And there's been a, a lack of variation of what caused the failures from a psychological perspective, even though the factors, uh, the, the, the environment has totally changed. So it's not like, well, you know, you had horses and so, but you failed and you had tanks and you failed. Wait a second. What's the common thread? Oh, the mind. Whether they are well-equipped or ill-equipped, whether they are in control of men who are armed with spears or tanks or rockets, whether they are English, Russian, German, Zulu, American, or French, good commanders pretty much remain the same. Likewise, bad commanders have much in common with the other, which is what we say all the time. Sometimes we'll get asked the question, well, you know, uh, what makes what makes this type of person a good leader? It's like, uh, it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter if they're a frontline infantry leader or a financial consultant company or a construction company. The leadership characteristics that make the good leaders are all the same. Yeah, humble leaders usually do better no matter the situation. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. One reward, rewarding byproduct of writing this book has been the many enjoyable conversations I've had with people in the armed services. Here again, however, a small minority viewed the enterprise with dismay as something lacking in taste, if not actually bordering on sacrilegious. So he's having conversations with people telling he's gonna write this book, and they're like, whoa, why are you gonna do that? He got a little footnote here, it says, it, it is fair to add that certain common characteristics of those civilians and servicemen who took extreme view provided a very useful clue as to the possible origins of military incompetence. <laughs> it's you. Yes. Sacrilege. You should not write a book like that. Okay. Mm. <laughs> to this understandable sensitivity, I can only say that no insult is intended. In point of fact, for the devotees of the military to take exception to a study of military incompetence is as unjustified as it would be for admirers of teeth to complain about a book on dental caries, which means decay. In an imperfect world, the activities of professional fighters are presumably as necessary to society as those of police, prostitutes, sewage disposers, and psychologists. It is just because we cannot do without these callings, except possibly the last, that any serious attempt to understand their peculiarities should be welcomed and indeed taken as a compliment. For it is a token of their importance that we should merit such attention. So we're freaking, it, you've got to be kidding me. Why wasn't this book, why isn't there just like decades of these books being written for every situation, every war that's taken place? Moreover, it's only by contemplation of the incompetent that we can appreciate the difficulties and accomplishment of the competent. If there were no incompetent generals, it might appear that the direction of armies and the waging of war were easy, tasked well within the compass of all who had the good fortune to reach the highest levels of military organizations. However, it is not only when contrasted with the inept that great commanders look their best, but also when seen in context of the organizations to which they belong. The thesis will be developed that the possibility of incompetence springs in large measure from the unfortunate, if unavoidable, side effects of creating armies and navies. This is to your point earlier, Dave. We create these things and they kind of produce, or at least have a tendency to produce incompetence. And therefore, when you're a good leader inside of a organization that produces incompetence, you're actually doing double good. You get two gold stars. For the most part, these tend to produce a leveling down of human capability at once encouraging to the mediocre, but cramping to the gifted, but can't, cramping to the gifted. 
Viewed in this light, those who have performed brilliantly in the carrying of arms may be considered twice blessed. <laughs> I guess I just stole that from him. For they achieved success despite bad features of the organization to which they happen to belong. This alone would seem to justify an unabashed excursion into the realms of military incompetence, but there are additional grounds, if anything, more pressing. They, they concern the related issues of cost and probability. <coughs> While few would dispute that the cost grows ex- exponentially with the growth of technology so that the price of wrong decisions must now be reckoned in mega deaths. The chance of military incompetence remains a matter for debate. We might hope that this would be a declining function for better education, more realistic values, greater fear of immeasurably worse consequences, and an incre- decrease in jingoism. But there are strong grounds for taking the pessimistic view that the chance, like the cost, continues to increase with positive acceleration. This is getting worse, is what he's saying. Hey, don't you think, hey, look, if you were going to go out and you're going to fight with swords and you're a bad leader, you're probably going to get 50 guys killed. Now you're going to go out and fight with artillery and machine guns. Now you're going to get 1,000 people killed. We must be making improvement. We're not. In fact, it's getting worse. Several reasons may be advanced for this depressing hypothesis. Firstly, the gap between the capabilities of the human mind and the intellectual demands of modern warfare continues that expansion which started in the 18th century. It is probably opening from both sides. While modern war becomes increasingly swift and deadly, and the means by which it is waged increasingly complex, the intellectual level of those entering the armed services as officers could well be on the wane. Ouch. He wrote this in 1976, just saying. He's like, hey, if you're going to the military right now, you know. This tentative supposition is based on the fact that fewer and fewer of the young consider the military to be a worthwhile career. Again, this is post-NOM he's writing this. One has only to look at the contemporary recruiting advertisements to realize the evident difficulties of finding officer material. They spare nothing in their efforts to convince an unresponsive youth. The services are depicted as glittering toy shops where handsome young men enjoy themselves with tanks and missiles while basking in the respect of lower ranks, hardly less godlike than themselves. In their eagerness to drum up applicants, these calls to arms attempt the mental contortion of presenting the services as a classless society in which officers nevertheless remain gentlemen. The clear clear implication of such expensive pleading can surely be that the market for a military career is shrinking, to say the least. To meet this fall off in officer recruitment, insufficient has been done, in the writer's opinion, to improve the real as opposed to the advertised incentive value of a military career. Again, this was written in the 70s, so you didn't have long lines at the recruiting offices. In 1973, when you, he was writing this. You can see how one might have this outlook <laughs> on the military yeah. during that time, for sure. Yeah. Um, skip a little bit here. In short, possibly less able people are being called upon to carry out a more difficult cost task with a heavier price tag and the highest levels of responsibility which are staggering. In the Vietnam War alone, the military commanders were responsible for executing policies which cost the United States $300 billion. Seems cheap now, 
coming out of Afghanistan at a $2 trillion price tag. They were responsible for releasing 13 million tons of high explosives, more than six times the weight of bombs dropped by the United States in all theaters during the whole of the Second World War. They were responsible for the delivery of 90,000 tons of gas and herbicides. And they were responsible for the deaths of between one and two million people. These are great responsibilities. Errors of generalship on this scale would be very costly. Of course, many of the arguments put forward in this book are equally applicable to other human enterprises. Hmm, that's why we're freaking interested in this stuff. Indeed, there is no reason to suppose that incompetence occurs more frequently in military subcultures than it does in politics, commerce, or the universities. There are, however, apart from the heavy cost of military disasters, special reasons for studying cases of military ineptitude. So this applies to everywhere. But that's why, I mean, this is what we do for a living at Echelon Front. This is what we do for a living. But he's gonna call out the reasons why he's gonna focus on the military. The first is that military organizations have a particularly propensity for attracting a minority of individuals who might prove a menace at high levels of command. And the second is that the nature of militarism serves to accentuate those very traits which might ultimately prove disastrous, which is what we just talked about. Dave Burke likes people to listen to him and he realizes there's a place he can go, he can put a freaking gold bar on his collar and he becomes the man. In theory then, Errors of generalship could be prevented by attention to these causes, you would think. Thirdly, the public has, at least in the democracies, some real say as to who should make its political decisions. This does not apply to generals. So look, we get to vote you out. If you're a president or you're a senator or you're a representative, we can vote you out. Can't vote out a general. Chairman of a board. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at business, yeah. you know, anything like that. Not the case here. Y- yeah, we can fire you from your position. 100%. Even the worst government and the most inept prime minister could come up for possible dismissal every so often. This is not true of armies and navies. We, ha- we may have the governments we deserve, but sometimes had the military minds, which we did not. Fourthly, if one of the main differences between military and political organization organizations is the degree of public control, that between the military and commerce lies in decision payoffs. <laughs> and he's got this note here, so relatively trivial and unimportant are most academic decisions that it would be arrogant to discuss them in the same breath. <laughs> this guy takes shots at the academia quite a bit. For a guy that's a freaking professor, or he was a professor. A wrong decision by a company chairman or board of directors may cost a great deal of money and depress a sizable population of shareholders, but military errors have cost hundreds of thousands of lives lives and untold misery to civilians and soldiers alike. But the case for a study of military incompetence rests upon other issues. Not the least of these is the need to examine a view of military behavior diametrically opposed to, though in no way less extreme than, that of people who would vehemently defend senior commanders against even the faintest breath of criticism. Well, this is what I was talking about earlier. We think, oh, this guy was in the military, so he must be squared away. No. This other hypocritical stance seems remarkably widespread. Thus, for many people with whom the author discussed a central topic of this book, the notion of military incompetence struck as an immediate and responsive chord. Rejoinders range from, you will have no shortage of data, 
to surely that's the whole of military history. So when he told people he was going to write this book, they go, oh, yeah, you got plenty of data on incompetence. And isn't that just the entire military history? But when pressed for details, there was a tendency to become vague and retire behind a 1066 and all that attitude to the subject. Psychological causes were usually reduced to a single factor, low intelligence, or as one historian put it, the bloody fool theory of military history. So look, you got people that made bad decisions. They were stupid. Doubtless this view has been contributed to by such books on military ineptitude as Alan Clark's The Donkeys, an abrasive critique of the generals of the First World War. Certainly, its title, taken from the famous conversation between Ludendorff and Hoffman, and such captions as Donkey Decorates a Lion. So this book, The Donkeys, this is a quote that you guys, you guys ever heard the quote, Lions Led by Lambs? So here's the original quote. According to the memoirs of Field Marshal Von Falkenhayn, cited by Alan Clark, Field Marshal Van Ludendorff's comment, the English soldiers fight like lions, was greeted by his friend, Major General Max Hoffman, with, true, but don't we know they are lions led by donkeys? And they got a picture in this book of, you know, some general giving a young soldier an award. And the caption is, Donkey Decorates Lion. Um, The contents of this book imply, however, that while stupidity may have possibly played a part, limited intelligence was certainly not the cause of the behavior for which the generals have been criticized. Judging from the spate of books among which the the donkeys appeared, it looked as if the taboo had been lifted on peering into the military woodshed. But mixing our rural metaphors the Ernst while sacred cows were once more being transmorgified into nothing more than very unsacred asses. Transmorgified. I had to look that word up. What is that? It means magically change. That magically changed. So transmorgified. Thus, one historian has ascribed a series of military mishaps to boneheaded leadership. Another spoke of, quote, the long gallery of military imbecility while a third has said of British soldiers that their fate was decided for them by idiots. So that's what they're normally, you know, this guy was just stupid. And as you read this, as you read this book, you realize these are smart people in many cases. And that's such a dismissive take on that. You know, it's just like, oh, that guy was dumb, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the point he's making. Right. Is, oh, oh yeah, the guy was just stupid. You, 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 and, and you know what's funny is how often do you, how often did you hear throughout your life, oh yeah, that guy's smart, has no common sense, mm-hmm. right? That's like a f- common thing. Oh, that guy's, oh, they'll say, oh, he's really book smart, which is a, a, a dig. Right. <laughs> Doesn't matter how smart you are if you can't make good decisions. And right. these people can, are actually smart in many cases. Mm-hmm. The view taken here is that besides being unkind, these views are probably invalid. The hypothesis of intellectual intellectual incapacity leaves two questions quite unanswered. How, if they are so lacking intelligence, do people become senior military commanders, which is an accurate statement. I mean, you can't be a senior military commander if you're stupid. Maybe, maybe occasionally. And what is it about military organizations that they should attract, promote, and ultimately tolerate those whose performance at the highest levels may destroy the organizations that they represent? 
to answer those these questions. However, it is first necessary to discover what the job of generalship entails and how it could be done so badly or so well. This, the bare bones of good and bad generalship, is examined in the next chapter in terms of information theory. <sighs> Again, you know, as I was going through this book trying to decide what you know what I'm going to read, I just had to go hard in these first couple chapters to lay down um, the background, the context. And so it's almost like all that right there is starting to head towards what we're talking about. The main part of this book is divided into two halves. The first is concerned with case histories, examples of military ineptitude over a period of some hundred years or so. Much of this material will no doubt be all too familiar to the reader. It is included here, and the selections made with two main purposes in mind, to provide an, an aid memoria, and because it is believed that common denominators of military incompetence emerge most clearly when looked at in a longitudinal study. One special virtue of this approach is that the highlights it highlights the influence or more often regret regrettable lack of influence of earlier upon later events. So throughout he's covering these histories and as you cover these histories you can see that there's just nothing learned. You know, it's even I guess maybe worse or at least the same ballpark as you're talking about Dave. Oh, they took these lessons learned and they made them rigid. And just as bad as that is we just didn't learn anything. For the most part, cases of incompetence have been taken from British military history. Far from being unpatriotic, this apparently one-sided approach springs from a sentimental regard for the forces of the crown whose record of valor and fighting ability is second to none and whose ability to rise above the most intense provocation either from a civilian population as in Northern Ireland today or from the lapses of their top leadership in days gone by must surely occupy a unique position in the history of warfare. So he's like, hey, I'm going to talk about the Brits. Nothing against the Brits. In fact, the Brits have the unbelievable history, but that's what we're going to look at. The second half of the book is devoted to discussion and explanation. It is subdivided into two parts. The first concerned with the social psychology of military organizations and the second with the psychopathology of individual commanders. And what's, I'm telling you, I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll just do this. Maybe I'll just do that. Maybe I'll just do one part. It, the context is so strong and he doesn't play around. He doesn't, he doesn't wait until the end to start explaining things. He's doing it throughout the book. So and and as you said and as I said, you know, you got to aim this book at yourself. Man, it's uncomfortable sometimes. You're reading this thing and you're like, "Oh. Oh man. Like, oh, I did that. I did this." You know, you can feel it. The approach here is essentially eclectic, drawing upon ethological psychoanalytic and behaviorist theories. It attempts to explain military ineptitude in light of five inescapable if unfortunate features of human psychology, these are. One, man shares with lower animals certain powerful instincts. And again, these are like the root of what he's talking about. These five inescapable parts of our brains. So we share with lower animals certain powerful instincts. Two, unlike lower animals, most men learn to control, frustrate, direct, and sublimate these instinctual energies. So, right, we got control over some of these things. At least we're supposed to. We can at least frustrate them. That's a good word, right? We can at least frustrate them. Three, while by far the largest part of this learning occurs in early childhood, 
its effects upon adult personality are profound and long-lasting again this is where you know you get into like uh you know freud and how you're raised and all these little things that are in your childhood and, they, and i don't know if that's right or wrong i don't know if that's right or wrong because i think i've seen people that have been raised all kinds of different ways and end up all kinds of different ways but i think the end result is you end up with a personality regardless of where it comes from you end up with a certain personality or certain personal personality aspects that we can pid we can identify them for residues of this early learning and in particular unresolved conflicts between infantile desires and the demands of punitive morality may remain wholly unconscious yet provide a canker of inexhaustible anxiety again really tying our behaviors to what how we got treated when we were kids and if you got you know the room had to be clean you had to clean your plate like all those little things and again, chime in if you guys think I'm wrong. I've known people that were raised in a totally strict environment and they end up on one end of the spectrum and I've known people that are raised in a totally strict environment and they end up in a totally different person. Are there some root things that are overlapping? Sure, but I think we have to look and maybe it's just the way psychologically things play out, you know, but they're does, there. Does he say unresolved? Yes. So I think that has I think that word jumps out at me the unresolved part. Mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of times people are able to come to terms with something from their childhood mm-hmm. and and then own it, right? Mm-hmm. Move past it. Um I think it's the unresolved part that lingers, right? Where mm-hmm. there's still there's a bit of broken something there that hasn't been addressed. Yeah. And because of that, it continues to plague the individual as they try to move forward. So maybe, so maybe if I know you two and you both were raised, you know, in this super strict way. Mm-hmm. And yet Carrie was like, you know what? You know, my, my mom was just a little bit crazy and that's cool. And, and but Dave was like, it couldn't let it go. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what makes Dave, you know, a little bit. A little, bit, a little bit harder in that respect. Or maybe you're both raised by, you know, the hippie parents that didn't care. And, you know, Carrie was like, yeah, I don't need to care about anything. It's all good. And Dave was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to end up like that. And you end up with a more militaristic mindset. Or a trauma. Yeah. Hippie mom wrecks the van. Mm-hmm. Johnny moves on, you know. Yeah. Uh, Dave doesn't. <laughs> Dave, Dave bears the scar, right? This thing hitting close to home to you, man? What's going on here? <laughs> Bearing I'm, the scar. I'm just here. saying. K-Dog. Yeah, it, 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 I, I really do. I think K-Dog it comes down to that. K-Dog the van. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the last one. When this anxiety becomes the driving force in life's endeavors, the fragile edifices of reason and competence are placed in jeopardy. So that's scary. Again, regard for me, regardless of the source of this personality trait that you end up with, if that be, it doesn't matter where it came from. If you have it and it becomes the driving force in your endeavors, that's where we run into a problem. And, and, and I don't wanna say it doesn't matter where it came from, but regardless of what you think of that, we know someone that's hyper, their ego's out of control. Like, it doesn't really matter. What, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter where it came from, but there's nothing we can do about where it came from. But if I understand that Dave has a massive ego, I'm not sitting there going, well, you know, do I need to have him sit down on the couch, you know, and like let's go, go, go hypnotism and break down where he got this giant ego from? Or am I just gonna be like, okay, he's got a big giant ego. 
How do I work through this? How do I get this? You know, how, how do I approach him with ideas? So we can, we can dwell on that a little bit, where these people, how these people end up like this. And I think that is important to an extent is just if you can understand somebody a little bit better, you can maneuver better. Um, but regardless, they end up, you end up with these personalities, different personalities. Um, I, I knew a guy, um, I, thought was, I mean, I've, I know you know, there was a whole slew because when I got in the Navy, so it's 1990, this had to be similar for you. There's a whole slew of my friends in the SEAL teams whose parents were just straight hippies, just freaking hippies, like conceived at Woodstock and whatever, like just straight up hippies. And yet they took the most militaristic life that they could, being a commando, right? So how's that work? Yeah, maybe it's a reaction to that, you yeah. know? And vice versa, have you ever known someone that had that hardcore, strict, religious upbringing? And what, how do they end up wild, freaking maniac, you, you know? I feel like that's the generic go-to, right? Where it's <laughs> yeah. like the rebel, you know? Yeah. Came, came from that strict Catholic school, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. And they just go yeah. the other way. And it's weird, because that's not, neither one of these things is like, oh, you went to a strict Catholic school, now you're a rebel. No, there's plenty of people that went to a strict Catholic school and they become strict Catholics. Yep. So. That's, I think this is why, and I, again, I'm not a psychologist and I don't even know enough about psychology, but I'm saying regardless of my opinion, because that's all it is, is an opinion, mm -hmm. the result that you get is, oh, this person has a very rebellious attitude and he's in my platoon, how do I deal with him? Or this person has a massive ego, he's in my platoon, how do I deal with him? <clears throat> it says here, in due course, we shall examine the scientific basis for these propositions and their relevance to a theory of military incompetence because this is a book about incompetence rather than competence about disasters rather than successes these chapters may appear to take an unnecessarily jaundiced view of the military profession and to dwell more upon what is bad rather than what is good in man's attempts to professionalize violence but without teasing out and enlarging upon the less pleasant features of a multifaceted phenomenon there could be no theory to account for those human aberrations which have caused so much unnecessary suffering as war. As Clausewitz wrote of war, this is the way in which the matter must be viewed and it is to no purpose. It is even against one's better interest to turn away from the consideration of the real nature of the affair because of the horror of its elements. Excites repugnance. So we shouldn't not look at war just because it's freaking savage. To the reader who recoils in disgust from these chapters, I can only say that the theory they advance is based upon the emergence of a pattern of which each small piece may in itself seem trivial, possibly ludicrous, even obnoxious, but which when put together with other pieces begins to make sense. This interdependence between the parts necessitates keeping an open mind and however much one may dislike or disbelieve the existence of individual trees postponing judgment until the wood is seen in its entirety. For the reader who is obsessed with trees and thinks that history should be left to historians, ideas about soldiering to soldiers and that psychological theorizing should never go below the belt, this is the moment to stop reading and save yourself some irritation. <laughs> We're rolling into chapter two, which is generalship. 
War is the province of uncertainty. Three-fourths of those things upon which action in war must be calculated are hidden more or less in the clouds of great uncertainty. Clausewitz. In a situation where the consequences of wrong decisions are so awesome, where a single bit of irrationality can set a whole train of traumatic events in motion, I do not think that we can be satisfied with the assurance that, quote, most people behave rationally most of the time, end quote. <laughs> this, this is a quote that I say to clients all the time. Hey, people are crazy, including you. You've got to deal with all these crazy people. So assuming that people are going to behave rationally is a dumb thing to assume. And the additional layer that you already talked about earlier is what's rational to me is not rational to you. Yeah. So even my expectations of what I think you would do as you consider rational, you're like, this is a totally rational thing for me to do. And it's exactly opposite of what I would do. Which is crazy that you and I can have those two opposite views. Yep. But that's the reality. Uh, War is primarily concerned with two sorts of activity. The delivering of energy and the communication of information. This is a crazy thing to think about. The delivering of energy. In war, each side is kept busy by turning its wealth into energy, which is then delivered free, gratis, and for nothing to the other side. Such energy may be muscular, thermal, kinetic, or chemical. Wars are only possible because the recipients of this energy are ill-prepared to receive it and convert it into a useful form for their own economy. (laughs) If, by means of, say, impossibly large funnels and gigantic reservoirs, they could capture and store the energy flung at them by the other side, the recipients of this unsolicited gift would soon be rich, so and the other side so poor that further warfare would be unnecessary for them and impossible for their opponents. It's a very interesting way to... I've never heard it put that way. It's it's the truth, right? Yeah, it is. Creating energy and hucking it at the other side. For free. (laughs) For free. And only because they can't handle it. Unfortunately, such levels of technology have not been reached. In the Vietnam War alone, the United States delivered to Indochina enough energy to displace 3.4 billion cubic yards of earth, 10 times the amount dug out for the canals of Suez and Panama combined, and enough raw materials in the shape of fuels, metals, and other chemicals to keep several major industries supplied for years. In fact, apart from a little slum clearance, this abundance of energy was wasted consumed in the making of 26 million craters and laying waste of 20,000 square kilometers of forest and the destruction of enough crops to feed 2 million people for a year. However, while the reception of energy is still totally uncontrolled, this is certainly not true of its direction and delivery. Indeed, these have become a matter of some sophistication and the prime concern of the military and naval commanders. There's the job of deciding how, when, and where to dispose of the energy which their side makes available. They do this by occupying nodal points on a complex communication network. In other words, the ideal senior commander may be viewed as a device for receiving, processing, and transmitting information in a way which will yield maximum gain for the minimum cost. Whatever else he may be, he is part of a telephone exchange and part computer. These, the common denominators of generalship, are depicted in figure one. And now he's got this figure here. And this is a, we're going to go like a little bit of OODA activity so Dave can get all excited. He's got this first section, which is input. This is what this is the input that you're getting. 
You've got the program that you're on, the broad strategy, the directives from the government, the orders from higher military authority, etc. You got information about the enemy, about your own troops. This includes strength, disposition, morale, intentions, supplies, capabilities. You got miscellaneous information, weather forecast, time of year, moon tides, limitations of staff, communication. Mail. So you got all these things that are you got your input. Now, the input that you get as a leader gets pre-processed by the staff. The, the, what the staff is doing is they're receiving it, they're putting it through a, through a decision process, they're running it through a program of their own previous experience, they got their memories, how good is their memory? And then you get this output, which eventually brings you results. And by the way, that's a loop the whole time. So you got that's the decision thing that's happening. You got information, you're processing it, you're bouncing it off your experiences, you're bouncing it off your your uh, staff. You run that loop until you figure out what you should do, which is pretty straight, which is seems complicated, and you, you can already tell it'd be hard, it's gonna be hard to make a really, like a solid decision. And then you got this other section here which is called noise. And this is what, this is what screws you up. External. Enemy action, inadequate intelligence sources, de- deluded chief of staff, et cetera, et cetera. Internal, defective senses or memory. So those are like, you got all kinds, we could list a million things that are external that are distractions and noise. Internal, you got defective senses, emotion, rigidity, stretch, stress, dissonance, alcoholism, neurosis. So there's all kinds of things. Freaking, you're a disaster. You're a disaster is what you are. So he says, so so I just kind of like described what this diagram looks like. For those who don't relish in flow diagrams, let it suffice to say that on the basis of a vast conglomerate of facts to do with the enemy, his own side, geography, weather, etc., coupled with his own long-term store of past experience and specialist knowledge, the senior commander makes decisions that ideally accord with the directives with which he has been programmed. Ideally. But these ideals are hard to meet. For there are two main reasons. The first is the senior commander's often have often to fill a number of incompatible roles. According to Morris Janowitz, these include include heroic leader, military manager, and technocrat. So that's what you gotta do if you're a leader in the military. Heroic leader, military manager, and technocrat. To these we would add politician, public relations man, and father figure, and psychotherapist, because that's what you're doing. The second reason for a breakdown is what communication engineers call noise in the system. Noise is what interferes with the smooth flow of information. Its destructive power hinges on the fact that senior commanders, like any other device for processing information, are channels of limited capacity. If they want to deal with more information, they will tend to take longer about it. If they don't take longer, they will make mistakes. Here we are using the term information in a special and perhaps its most important sense as the that which indu- reduces uncertainty. So that's what information is. Information is that which, which reduces uncertainty. Let me expand on this a little. Acquiring knowledge involves the reduction of ignorance through the acquisition of facts, but ignorance is rarely absolute and its reduction rarely total. Doesn't matter. You're not gonna know everything. And you're not gonna know nothing. Hence, reducing ignorance can be regarded as reducing uncertainty about a given state of affairs. It follows that an unlikely or unexpected fact contains more information. 
i.e. reduces more uncertainty than one which is already expected. He's going to go into that hard, that what I just said. It follows that an unlikely or unexpected fact contains more information, i.e. reduces more uncertainty than one which is already expected. We already expected it. Well, it doesn't really help me that much. But an unexpected fact is less readily absorbed than one which was expected. Ooh. I wasn't expecting this to happen, so I'm going to kind of reject it. If this is less than crystal clear, consider the following example cast in a suitable military context. The message in this case consists of an intelligence report which states, quote, enemy preparing for counterattack, attack, end quote. It goes on to detail strength, disposition, date, and likely sector for attack. Now, this message, factually so simple, contains amount of information which differ greatly from commander to commander. To General A, who anticipated such a counterattack, it conveys very little. It merely confirms a hypothesis which he already held. In fact, since he had already made extensive preparation for a counterattack, the intelligence report when it came was largely redundant. So that's General A. Hey, I was expecting this. Cool. Got it. In the case of General B, however, the same message was quite unexpected. So little had he anticipated an enemy counterattack that the news was charged with information. It reduced a great deal of ignorance and uncertainty. It gave him plenty to occupy his mind and much to do. And I'm going to dive into that part right there because this is really important. Finally, we have General C, for whom the message was so totally unexpected that he chose to ignore it with disastrous results. It conflicted with his preconceptions. It clashed with his wishes. It emanated, so he thought, from an unreliable source. Since his mind was closed to its reception, he found plenty of reasons for refusing to believe it, like British generals after the Battle of Cambrai or American generals before the German counter-effect offensive in the Ardennes of 1944. He ignored it at his cost. Its information content was just too high for his channel of limited capacity. And, and so those three examples. And when I, when I first read this, I thought, General A, it doesn't contain much information because he was already expecting it. General B got a lot of information from it because he wasn't expecting it. And it seems like General B might be in a better situation because he was he got more information, but that's not true. And it all boils down to this last thing. Its information content was too high for his limited channel of capa- capacity of his limited uh, channel of limited capacity. I think an advantage that I have and that I try and teach other people is to have an open mind and to and to not when new information arises to to, to absorb it and and accept it and be like okay this is new information i take it with a grain of salt of course but i'm not and 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 go even further than that it's not just that my mind is open it's that i'm i'm actually trying to anticipate what's going on I'm actually thinking, well, what, what, what are they probably going to do? You know, they're probably going to do this. And when, but I don't dig in on that. You know, the enemy could probably going to attack from the west. Um, but I don't go, no, the enemy is going to attack. The enemy is probably going to attack from the west, but they could also come from the south. And you know what? They could come from the east, north. doesn't matter. I think that when you said the word anticipation was the piece, as I'm hearing you talk about it, but you hear those three generals and you think, oh, B's the right guy. 
Because, oh, even oh, you thought that no, no, too? No, huh? no, no, I, no. I, I, oh, okay. I don't. I actually, I'm, I'm trying to explain the logic right, 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 when, right. as it, it's, it seems at face value as it unfolded in my head. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I could see people going, oh, B's the best example because he got the most information. Like, oh from. man, this changes everything. Holy cow! And clearly sees the worst because he's like, I can't accept that in my brain, so we're not doing that. I don't acknowledge it. And to his folly, like it's gonna, the whole team's gonna get wiped out. But when you said anticipation, because I think of it as you've as we talk about it as we teach it and as as you've discussed it which is i'm going to do these things i'm going to make these moves i'm going to i'm going to try to create a situation that unfolds a certain way but i know i know it doesn't go the way that i expect which means i am anticipating a bunch of other potential options now i don't necessarily know which one it's going to be but when you come back and say it didn't go uh, it, let me say it differently it went this way and no matter what this way is you go okay i can see that i can see how our moves created this outcome and maybe not even what you want or maybe not even what you expected but the other ones aren't unexpected which makes it so much easier to go, okay, cool. Now I've got the information. Here's the adjustments we're going to make. Or, hey, we'll continue down the path if it's the way we want it. But the anticipation that the outcome is not what you want, that word, that's the piece for me that resonates, which is the best situation to be in is, oh, it was different than I wanted, even a little different than I expected, and I'm not surprised by that. I don't get caught mentally off balance very often. Because you don't predetermine the outcome. Because I, I don't pre, I don't lean too hard. Yes. Now I'm not saying I don't lean, but I don't I don't lean so much that when that resistance isn't there, I just fall on my face. Yeah. And, and I I I steal the, a comment that you made with from from your second platoon commander over and over again. The context he was using it was someone on his on your team doing something wasn't really smart. And it's just the simple saying of you gotta expect these things to happen. Yeah. But I overlay that onto everything I can think of, which is, oh, that didn't really go as expected, but I'm not that surprised by it. Like, yeah, I kind of expect these things to happen. And just the idea of saying, you gotta expect those things to happen. Other people are thinking, holy cow, this is a level 10 emergency. This is an unsolvable tragedy. It's like, no, I, I kind of am used to these type of things going the way that people don't expect it. And we can actually solve this. I can absorb that and make some changes, no factor. Yeah. Yeah. Don't overcommit Don't to your brain. Overcommit the outcome. The the other thing about this example is with this mechanical like dissection he's doing of all this stuff, there's he talks a lot about the capacity and with general A, you've got very little capacity left over from what you were expecting, right? So you've got your expectation of what's going to happen and you've got some capacity left over to to dedicate to what's actually happening. Um, guy B, or the General B, let's say, um, he it takes him by surprise. So now he has to do so much more back-end work that General A's already done, yeah. and he's got all this free capacity yeah. that now he can dedicate to what's actually happening. And the third guy has got so little, you know, that he just – he's he's – he chooses to willfully ignore what's happening rather than take on the challenge yeah. of, you know. Yeah, if you did one of those uh, games where you have to look at something for a short period of time and mem- remember as much as you can, if I said, okay, Dave, I'm going to show you a car in this next picture, it's a Ford Bronco, and I want you to remember as much about it as you could, you'd be like, okay, here's the color, here's the license. But if I said, hey, Carrie, I want you to go and I'm going to show you a picture, tell me as much about it as you can. You'd be like, get half, a quarter of the information because you just don't have that much. Your, your capacity's 
already taken. It's overflowing right. with stuff. Car, trying to make Bronco, sense of the color, right. like You're trying to figure all this out, yep. and you're just overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're trying not to do. Right. And I think also, too, just from a leadership standpoint, when you're thinking about people, there aren't three versions of people out there. There's yeah. 7 billion versions yeah. of that. So this is a... As this is a dial across all those spectrums, and, and, and certainly you can categorize that, and those examples yeah. are good examples, but even inside there, you don't just get three. Yeah. If you got a team of 26, you're not, don't bin them into three categories and presume they sit in those, those yeah. bins. I bet you that you could probably break it down into weight classes, though, and not end up with seven billion, but end up with like nine yeah. weight classes. You yeah, know, sure. and it's really just yeah. there's a spectrum inside yeah, there. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's like, oh, yeah, you're, you're between, you know, 170 pounds and 185 pounds. Like, we know what kind of, yeah. we know you're, I like that. you know, you're, you're like leaning really hard. Dude. We know what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, this continues. <clears throat> One particularly hazardous aspect of the relationship between information and decision processes concerns the the revising of decisions. It seems that having gradually and perhaps painfully accumulated information in support of a decision, people become progressively more loath to accept contrary evidence. So this is everything we're just talking about. You make a decision, you've got some information, and now we're not wanting to accept anything different. As Edwards and his colleagues have shown, the greater the impact of new information, the more strenuously it will be resisted, which is actually crazy. It's actually crazy. Dave's like, I'm heading north. I'm, hey, I'm heading north. We're heading north right now. We made the call. And I'm like, hey, actually, bro, there's like enemy up there. And you're like, we already made the call. Like, are you sure? Total resistance. There are several reasons for this dangerous conservatism. New information has, by definition, high informational content, and therefore, firstly, it will require greater processing capacity. Secondly, it threatens a return to an earlier state of gnawing uncertainty. And thirdly, it confronts the decision maker with the nasty thought that he may have been wrong. No wonder he tends to turn a blind eye. (laughs) I mean, I talk about this in one way or another all the time. All the time. Isn't it scary to think I'd rather just be wrong than go back to just being uncertain? Look, we're going north. Bro, there's there's enemy up there. Yeah, but at least I know where I'm going. <gasps> Freaking disaster.com. Dude. So much for a broad description of this most vital dimension of knowledge, its prior improbability. Let us return now to the other side of the coin, the problem of noise. Noise, as we saw, is the enemy of information. Noise takes up channel space and thereby disrupts the flow of information. The more limited the channel capacity, the greater disrupting effects of noise. The more noise, the less information can be handled. And and, um, again, as I read this, I look for some of the things that I do wrong, some of the things I do good. Man, I am a noise eliminator. I am a freaking noise eliminator. There's stuff going on around me that doesn't matter. It, I like give it no, no. I don't give it a second of my energy, just to be able to recognize what is noise, mm. and go, hey, that's noise. We're gonna we're gonna filter that out, <laughs> as opposed to the overreaction that most people have. And, and and I keep in my own head going back to things that I I recall as you're as you're reading this. I've been thinking a lot about Band of Brothers, mm. and there's a character in there. If you haven't heard it, it's the the book is awesome. The, 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 the TV series is like 
incredibly good. It's very rare that I take a book and and see the the TV version and go, oh, that was really, really good. Yeah. The TV version is awesome. There's this character, Captain Sobel, who is kind of like this tyrant of a leader. And there's a scene where he's leading his platoon and he runs into like, I, I think it's like he's maneuvering to get to some objective and, and he ends up up against like a barbed wire oh, fence. Yeah. This fence isn't supposed to be here. This fence isn't supposed to be here. It's not on the map. And this guy's like, sir, we can we can just go, we can just cut the fence. And he's like, yeah, but it's not supposed to be. And he spends all this time reacting to the idea that this fence was not on the map. And the people around him are like, sir, it's like a barbed wire fence. We could get through this thing in literally five seconds. But that noise of the fence that's it's not supposed to be here. And he was incapable of responding to what appeared to be this. And it's the inability to go, oh, Oh, hey, this is a distractor. Yeah. Hey, this is noise. We need to filter this out. I would say that's actually a better example of this isn't what I expected, and yeah. therefore I can't accept it. Well, part of that, yeah. It's beyond noise, because noise is like, well, there's other stuff going on, but yeah. here's what, he's seeing something with his own two eyes, totally. and he's like, hey, the, this isn't supposed to be, the, the map doesn't have this. Totally. Well, it's funny you said that, because I've been thinking about him for about 30 minutes, and I chose this as the example, but where it really indexed for me was when you gave her those three examples, yeah. and I'm like, Dude, that's Captain Sobel, man. This is in the character that they he talks about in this book to reveal what this character was like, and it brought me back to authoritarian. He, you know, he'd do uniform inspections if you had one thing off, you lose your weekend. He was just such a follow the to the to the detriment of every, himself and everybody around him. Mm-hmm. But you know what the military loves? A uniform platoon. They all mm-hmm. look the same. Uh, it's just a character, but it's it's that idea that the incapacity to to acknowledge those things and be able to deal with them and happen in real time and go. Hey, this is no factor. Everybody yeah. goes, oh, oh, okay, cool. It's just a character, but it's also a complete and utter caricature of this authoritarian leader. Yep. We can probably just start referring back to him throughout this, the rest of this book. It's so <laughs> strong. Um, a glance back at figure one suggests that not only does a senior military commander receive more than, more than his fair share of information, but the communication system of which he forms a part is a peculiarly susceptible to noise. This may be external in origin, ranging from the static on a radio link to the delusions of a chief of staff. <laughs> or it may be internal, ranging from such peripheral sources as poor eyesight, a common feature of the generals of the Crimean War, to such Centrally, central and usually more disastrous causes as defective memory, brain disease, neurosis, and alcoholism. <laughs> uh, noise from all these sources may act upon the flow of information through a general's head and eventuate in decisions varying in gravity from the mildly inept to the utterly catastrophic. But decisions hinge upon more than available information. They also depend upon, quote, payoffs, the anticipated consequences of choosing one course of action rather than another. Payoffs may be positive or negative, beneficial or costly. They are the criteria according to which decisions are made. Obviously, if a commander gets his criteria wrong, if the possible loss of self-esteem or social approval or fear of offending a superior authority is given greater weighting than more rational considerations, the scene is set for calamity. So there you are trying to make a decision and you're weighing if you're gonna lose self-esteem or if you're gonna lose social approval, which is crazy. But we know that happens. 
The possibility of this happening is increased by the fact that the fog of war, unlike uncertainties which attach to most civilian enterprises, extends not only to the input, but also to the payoffs. Not only does the general have to make decisions on the basis of a great volume of dubious information and to meet and meet a program of perhaps questionable validity, he may also not know the costs and benefits of what he does propose. He is like a man who places a bet without knowing the odds or where the bookie might be found once the race is over. This is a freaking hard job. As well as those problems which are inherent in any communication system, the human decision maker is the victim of another hazard. Namely, that attention, perception, memory, and thinking are all liable to distortion or bias by emotion and motivation. As needs arise, whether they be social or biological, neurotic or adaptive, so they act upon a way man perceives his external world, what he attends to, the sort of memories which he conjures up, and the decisions which he makes. He is like a computer which has not only to receive, store, process, and deliver information, but also has to postpone sleep, cope with hunger, resist fear, control anger, sublimate sex, and keep up with the Joneses. When it is considered that the capacity for perception and response for memory and thought presumably evolved for the satisfaction of needs, it is a remarkable achievement at the best of times to keep these informational processes of mind free from bias by the needs which they were originally designed to serve. So you got all this stuff going on in your head. You're genetically built this way to have these thoughts and have these pulls and have these biases and and it's like, It's hard as hell to keep that stuff and make your operating system as clean as possible. And then he says, in war, such an achievement borders on the miraculous. And this for very one simple reason, the effects or needs, the effects of needs upon cognition are maximized when the needs are very strong and external reality is ambiguous or confused. It is under such conditions that need and emotion have the greatest freedom of maneuver, the greatest capacity for imposing themselves upon the uncertainties of thought. These are the conditions which obtain in war. And that is freaking important. This whole idea that emotion has the greatest freedom of maneuver and the greatest capacity for imposing itself on you during times of uncertainty. And this is why this is why people get crazy. This is why people get crazy when you go on deployment in a combat zone. This is why somebody that's acting normal and seems to be good to go, and all of a sudden you get you get on deployment and they get crazy because that emotion starts to come out. I remember I wrote a note to my buddy, a good friend of mine, just just to recount this idea. When, when I was lucky enough that I was one of the first units to deploy after 9-11 to go to Afghanistan and start dropping bombs out there, which was at the time like the best thing ever. It was like what I wanted to be doing. Oh, 9-11 happened and, and everybody was sort of scrambling to go. I came back and then Iraq was, we, we knew that Iraq was gonna happen relatively shortly after we came back within the year. And I remember writing a note to a buddy of mine who was getting ready to go to his first combat deployment. And I just said, the people around you were, are gonna do crazy things. Mm-hmm. People that you think you know are gonna do things that totally catch you off guard. That was like my first lesson from just, and that's a, a very small degree compared to what mm-hmm. he experienced in World War II. And the biggest takeaway when he was asking, hey, hey, what can I expect? It had nothing to do with the tactics. The, it, it, I said, the people around you are gonna do things that catch you off guard. They're gonna surprise you mm-hmm. because the situation is gonna, it, their circuit breakers are gonna pop and it's gonna blow their minds. Yep. 
Yep. And is uh, that's a warning I've given people as well. Of you, you get right on deployment. I remember explaining to someone, "Hey, it's going to get wild," and meaning people are going to start acting crazy. And and uh, you know, having people say, "No, they're not." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> you know, fast forward two months, it's like, "Bro, what's happening with this dude?" I'm like, "Remember when I told you people were going to get crazy? There you go." Contemplation of what is involved in generalship may well may well occasion surprise that incompetence is not absolutely inevitable, that anyone can do the job at all. Particularly is this so when one considers that military decisions are often made under conditions of enormous stress when actual noise, fatigue, lack of sleep, poor food, and grinding responsibility add their quotas to the ever-present threat of total annihilation. He's like, hey, bro, it's a miracle anyone can pull this shit off. I love this sentence. Actual noise. <laughs> Actual noise, and that's in italics. Totally, man. I hope I said it in italics, because it's in italics. Indeed, the foregoing analysis of generalship prompts the thought that it might be better to scrap generals and leave decision-making aspects of war to computers. A similar argument has been made, has been advanced in connection with medicine. Why leave diagnosis and therapeutic decisions to fallible human brains when a computer could make them with far less chance of error. The answer, of course, and this no doubt contributes much to the relief of generals and doctors, that computers make poor leaders and indifferent father figures. They may be quick and efficient, unprejudiced, sober and alert, but withal remain cold fish. They do not inspire affection with its consequent desire to please, nor do they exude a bedside manner. Paradoxically, they are also perhaps just a little too infallible. They are, moreover, as we, as far as we know, devoid of feelings. What is worse, quite indifferent to outcomes of their decisions. But while all this militates against computers as leaders of men, so-called leadership qualities in military commanders are just as dependent upon the various factors outlined in our flowchart as are any of the other responses which a general makes. Prejudice, ignorance, fear of failure, Overconformity and sheer stupidity may disrupt leadership decisions as surely as they interfere with planning or technical decisions. All are products of the same brain. Man, there's a lot going on. God. One last point. A senior military or naval commander does not, indeed cannot, act in lonely isolation but is fettered by the organization to which he belongs. He is like a computer or telephone exchange whose modus operandi is based on rules which may have little relevance to the tasks it is called upon to perform. Imagine a telephone exchange that, for the honor of the post office, has to follow the rule that all telephonists should have red hair, 38-inch busts, and heavily lidded eyes, and one has some idea of the restricting effects which an organization may have upon its own functioning. In these chapters that follow, we shall be examining some well-known cases of military incompetence to discover, if possible, the, the precise reasons for and the common denominators of these events. For the moment, however, let us consider one brief and less well-known incident which illustrates how the smooth flow of information through the brains of senior commanders may be so distorted that their decisions prove catastrophic. The culprits in this instance are naval not military commanders. 
The place is Samoa, and the date, 1889. Seven warships, three American, three German, and one British are lying at Acre in the harbor of Appia. They are there as naval and military presence to watch over the interests of their various governments in the political upheavals that are taking place ashore. Accordingly, they anchor in what has been described as one of the most dangerous anchorages in the world. For to call Apia a harbor at all is at best an unfortunate euphemism. Largely occupied by coral reefs, this saucer-shaped indentation lies wide open to the north whence the great Pacific rollers come sweeping in. In fair weather, Appia provides an uneasy resting place for no more than four medium-sized ships. For seven large ships and numerous smaller craft, under adverse conditions, it is a death trap. This was the situation in which the seven men of war witnessed the first bleak portents of an approaching typhoon. So you got seven ships inside this little harbor, which this little harbor actually has an open mouth to the sea. Full of reefs. Full of reefs. Just full of reefs. And it's, bi- it's big enough for four ships. There's seven in there. <laughs> There's Even to a landsman, a rapidly darkening sky and falling glass, squally gusts of wind, and then a lull would bode ill. For seven naval captains, the signs were unmistakable. They knew they were in a region of the world particularly subject to typhoons, which in a matter of minutes could lash the sea into a furious hell of boiling water. They knew that such storms generate winds traveling at upwards of 100 knots, gusts that could snap masts like carrots, reduce deck fittings to matchwood, and throw ships on their beam ends. They knew that this was the worst month of the year. And they also knew that only three years before, every ship in Appia had been sunk by such a storm. In short, and in in the terms of our flow chart, their stored information coupled with present input pointed to only one decision, to get up and get out. And as if this was not enough, the urgency weighing of weighing anchor and putting to sea was respectively suggested by subordinate officers. So you got a freaking massive storm approaching. By the way, what was it, a year, three years before every ship in the harbor had been sunk, we've got subordinate officers that are saying, hey captain, we should get out of here. But the captains of the warship, but the captains of the warships were also naval officers And so they denied the undeniable and stayed where they were. Their behavior has been described as an, quote, error of judgment that will forever remain a paradox in human psychology, end quote. When the typhoon struck, its effects were tragic and inevitable. Without sea room, their anchors dragging under the pressure of the mountainous seas, their holes and rigging crushed by the fury of the wind, three of the warships collided before collided before being swept onto the jagged reefs of coral. Another sank in deep water. Two more were wrecked upon the beach. Of all the ships in the harbor, the only survivor was a British corvette, which, thanks to its powerful engines and superb seamanship, squeaked through to the open sea. Why did the naval commanders, versed in the ways of the sea and provided with ample warning, thus hazard their ships and their lives of their men? A superficial answer might be pride. 
or fear of appearing cowardly or fear of criticism from their superiors. These matters are to be pursued in later chapters. For the moment, the apparently incorrigible behavior of these men illustrates how decision process can be thrown into disarray by noise of internal origin and how, in this instance anyway, incompetence cannot be attributed to ignorance or ordinary stupidity. The, the, it's an inter, the, the focus of that is this is an internal noise. It's, it's internal. They, they knew what was coming. They could see what was coming. There's no lack of communication. They were watching the storm come. They have the history. They, have, they know what's happened in this harbor for. There's like everything is clear. And yet the decision by seven captains, I guess six, one of them made it out. Sounds like he squeaked out though. They all make the wrong decision. How does that happen? No external factors can be blamed in this situation. It's internal. It's internal noise that comes from our own psychology. So, well, two and a half hours deep. Um, I say we call it for today. Uh, this book is going to be. Uh, I, there's so much in this book, um, and and I'll start to speed up a little bit. I think as we as we push into the next podcast, um, hit some of the high waves for the section where they cover the historical disasters. But like I said, it's not like he just talks about the historical da- disasters and explain what happens. He starts to explain why decisions are getting made, where the ego comes into play, who's who's offending one another, what these internal decision disasters are caused by. And, and I'm telling you, it is a great warning for all of us, military, civilian, business, family. And you can probably already see the, the this is what we talk about all the time. This book, these, these topics are what we talk about all the time and the examples. Bring them to f- to even clearer light. We'll get into it on the next podcast. Until then, uh, Carrie, we are we are trying to prevent our own incompetence as much as possible in every aspect of our lives. We are. What a what a what can you recommend to us to try and mitigate our own incompetence? That's not a very high goal, is it? Mitigating <laughs> our own incompetence. What do you got? So we want to battle incompetence. We want to be more capable, not less capable. Um, we want a clean operating system. Oh, I like where you're going with this. Operate clean. Right? Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. how can we do that? We're going to do that with a little bit of Jocko fuel, a little discipline go. Little RTD <laughs> in a can, possibly some uh, afterburner orange or mango mayhem from the big dog Echo Charles. Who? The big dog Echo Charles, the Who? Hawaiian. That name rings a bell. Oh, the guy whose job oh, you yeah. took. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot uh, his name. The big dog <laughs> Echo Charles. Oh, people are going to freak out. Oh, man. K-Dog's on here? They're like, wait a second. What happened to Echo Charles? Cover move. Yeah, okay. How about that? So he couldn't make it today. 
Echo Charles was otherwise detained. Right on. So K Dog so had so K Dog had to step up to the plate. How did it feel in the hot seat over there? Because <laughs> uh, you've been behind the scenes. I've been behind the scenes a little bit. I've been in the. I've been in the. You've been on the other side of the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you're front and center. Now we're in here. And yeah. maybe Echo's like he's on the ropes. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Echo is an institution, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> and I, I'm, that makes one of us. <laughs> <laughs> I am happy to fill in, though, man. Honestly, it's uh, it's super cool to sit at the table. I've said this to you and probably Dave too, man. Hallowed ground, the people who've sat around this table, man. It's it's something special. So, super cool to be able to do it uh, today for sure. Right on. So we're getting some. Jocko Fuel, JockoFuel.com. JockoFuel.com. We're getting some discipline go. Going to Wawa Mm -hmm. and just clearing shelves. That's where we're at. If you go to Wawa and you clear a shelf, let me tell you what you're doing. You're helping every other trooper in America. That's what you're doing. Because as other convenience chains see what's going on at Wawa, they're like, oh, oh, okay, we got it. So roll into Wawa and just get some. Just clear shelves. Um, Wawa's got something going on right now, right? With do. discipline, yeah. good. Yeah. If it's October, if when it's you're October. listening to this, yeah, right you, on. You 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 buy one and you get another one for a buck. Maybe missed it, which is kind of dope. Well, we didn't miss anything. Yeah. This comes out tonight, tomorrow <laughs> oh, night. Yeah, yeah right K- on. K Dog's just gonna roll right in. Hey, hot. Get get out the wall for that <laughs> bogo action. Uh oh, look at you. Let's not get one though, because oh, it's a well, buck. Buy one, Back get one get for a buck. dollar. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, joint warfare. Super krill. Mm-hmm. Um. These these things are all battle against that noise we're talking about. Body. Body noise. Physical noise. That elbow noise. Oh, you got some elbow noise? Bro, always. Well, not, you know. I got some shoulder noise. Mm. If I'm telling you, if I don't if I if I miss out on joint warfare, it's a problem. Joint that's wa- why I don't miss out on it. Joint warfare and super krill, that's my that's my go to, man. Get rid of that noise. How about that mulk? Dave, you get on that mall train? <laughs> Are you still on strawberry? Yeah. Dude, you've been on strawberry for a while. I don't know what's going to ever. I mean, I, I have them all. I got a lineup in my mm-hmm. closet or my, my pantry, but mm-hmm. it's it's like, um you know, it's like afterburner orange for me. That's what I'm going to. <laughs> it's strawberries the best. Do you, so right now you're drinking what? Dak Savage? What do you got over there? I got a Dak right in front so of me. So at the, at, the, at the gym here, we were out of afterburner orange, which I know is no big surprise to you. <laughs> But do you ever think, eh, I almost wavered today on Jocko Palmer. I was like, you know, maybe I'll go Tropic Thunder. Because Tropic Thunder, especially when it's cold, it's freaking legit. But you're still strawberry. Yes. And milk, strawberry, that's it. Dude, I'd mix nothing in that. It's strawberry and milk, and that's it. I don't like, and hey, no criticism, that's your game, but like in the stuff that people put in there and like I I put yeah. it in a shaker cup, I shake it up, and I drink it, and there's nothing I want to add Echo to Charles it. over here, get, he's got to go to the grocery store. There, what? No, bro, you know what I'm saying? The frozen banana, game changer all day. All day. That frozen banana, something about that consistency. Kelsey putting out word, huh? Oh, man. She nailed well, how does it. When you, when you, you got to blend it then, too. Yeah, That's a whole a little, issue. Well, See, here's the thing with me. I like to eat, sure, but you know some people... They, 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 they have like a whole, it's a, it's a ritual, right? Mm-hmm. And they're going to get, they go to the store and they're like picking stuff up and then they fire up the grill and you know, I got a nice grill and everything. I, I, 
you I'll put in the microwave. Like I'm not I'm not firing that thing up. I'm one of those people. We're looking for efficiency. Yeah. Oh, I will I will open up a can of chicken from Costco and just that's dinner. If my wife didn't make good food, I would just be eating, you know, a a, a can of 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 chicken. You'd be on that K-Dog. Yeah, I'd be plan. on the K-Dog routine. <laughs> it's the single life, homie. Yeah, You're right. just full on in it. Yeah, two cups of green beans, some Hawaiian rolls. You're good to go. <laughs> You're ready to rock and roll. So, but you know what is good? That's why I'm not I'm not exploring the freaking half-frozen, well-ripe banana or whatever it is we're doing. <laughs> right, I'm over here. I'm with Dave. I'm like, milk, okay. milk, we're good. But here's the Shake thing it up. for me. That milk-milk combo, yeah. my scale, you know what I'm giving it? I give it a 10. Yeah. I'm giving it a 10. It's, 10. it's like oh, I'm just suffering through the 7, 6-point negative. No. It's a 10. That's, that's where So I'm all this at. other stuff you're doing, you know what's going to get you to? A 10. Yeah. That's where I'm at right now. <laughs> so I don't need it. Yeah. I, I'm the same way. Now, I will say I'm, I'm not solo on one flavor right now. I'm, I'm bouncing around. I bounce around. I used to go like one month on a flavor. And then I go in three weeks on another flavor. Then I go back to another flavor for a month. I'm kind of, I'm kind of getting crazy right now. I'll be, you know, I'll be even doing, you know, dip mixing it up during the day. Oh. You know, <laughs> lunch is gonna be some peanut butter. Dinner's gonna be some mint, right? We're got some all, variety you know, going on. I'm over here closed-minded, not free thinking. Yeah, I, know I got strawberry. Are. I'm gonna stick with strawberry for about 25 years. We'll adjust <laughs> some other time down the road. <laughs> uh, Wawa right for the drinks, Vitamin Shop. Yes. Get all the stuff at the Vitamin Shop. Also, at JockoFuel.com. What? Commissary. Oh, that's right. Navy Commissary. Yeah, man. That's right. That's right. Good call. K Dog. 100%. We're in there, man. We're in there. Um, JockoFuel.com. If you, uh, yeah, also subscribe. If you subscribe, you get the shipping for free. What up? Just where do we stand on greens? Okay, we have we have greens, yeah. Jocko greens. Um, they're amazing, dude. They they are amazing. Yes. They really truly are amazing. Yes, they are. They are. They're hard to make. Um, if you look at the ingredients list, it's all organic. The whole product together is not certified organic because we haven't gone through that process yet. But every ingredient in there is, or I think every ingredient is organic. So it's it's hard to make it. Um, so that's why I'm not talking about it a ton because okay. people that are kind of in the know, <laughs> like I'm not trying to screw them and just tell everyone that this is the greatest beverage. Yeah, uh, it's certainly, it certainly is the greatest greens, but and not even close. It's not even close. It tastes delicious. The, go look at the ingredients list too. It is the best quality, sweetened with monk fruit. It, you know what I've been doing is I've been having that like let let's because sometimes you know I get done with the steak at night, and I want dessert, but I'm full. So that milk is sort of looking like a little bit much. Out comes the greens. Yes. <laughs> Out comes the greens. It's like what, like uh, wine people, they drink whatever it is, a port, mm. right? A port. Can I get a glass of port? When I'm feeling that way, since I'm a freaking <laughs> savage, I'm just ordering up a, cla- a glass of greens. Shaking up the greens. Right, shaking listen, up some greens. I, I brought it up, and I don't want to alienate the, the listeners who maybe don't have access, and, and you can edit all the stuff out. if, if, if No, it's, people have access, he, but here's the deal on the greens. You want to go back to the three categories of leaders, which is the fully anticipates the outcome, shocked by the outcome, and can't process the outcome. When I drank my first container of greens, Could I was squarely in category C. Like, <laughs> what is happening? 
It, the yeah. the dip, the delta between what I expected yeah. and what I got, it was insane. Yep. Those things are, it is unbelievable how good they yep. taste for what you think it's going to taste like because it's greens. Yep. It was an absolute mind-blowing experience. This I've stuff been, is well, I've been doing it in the morning, and it, and it morning. does give you like a little bit of kick, right? That other kick, and it's just good to go. So yeah, listen. If you if you go online, you order the greens. Awesome. If if we're out, we're making them more as fast as we can. I apologize. Logistics wins wars. Um, we're working it. We're losing that war right now. We're we're in the game, and we'll try and get you some more. That's like the kind of thing you want to subscribe to too. Because you want that order getting filled. So good. Don't yeah. want to be waiting. When are you drinking drink? it, Dave? Every morning. Just in the, it's like in the morning so just go-to. immediately into my habit pattern. I haven't, I haven't since I got it. I haven't missed a day. It was, it, it it's everything you just said. I just want yeah. people to realize like what you think you're getting with greens. Like everybody knows what greens are. Cool, they're healthy. You sort of need to stomach them and just yeah. kind of like hold your nose and and get to them because they're good for you. Yeah, go to your lawnmower, get the clippings <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> That's what, you think blender. that's what you think you're getting right <laughs> and you're not the, you're the origin media team did this uh like double blind video yeah, like yeah, yeah. double blind study video from the emergent camp yeah. and it's awesome man <laughs> yeah. people are just like all day oh my gosh yeah. this is green it's like doesn't even it doesn't even compute that yeah. it can be that good for oh, you it's, yeah. category so, c there you go S- speaking category of origin c. speaking of origin we got a uh, geese rash guards apparel Coming out of Origin USA, right? Yeah, uh, doing boots up there now. Yeah, we're doing it all. Kidding? I'm gonna. We're we're gonna make everything that we use mm-hmm. in life. That's the goal. The goal is to make everything that we that we use in life, and we're gonna make it in America. And let me tell you what. That's a that's no small task, and we're getting it done. Jeans. Boots. We got work pants coming out. I saw, I saw those on the ground. Uh, I'll tell you what, man. That's another thing. Like we're gonna make them as fast as we can. As soon as people get a pair or see a pair, they're they're gonna be gone. Um, and we'll, you know what? We we're we're up in our capacity again. Logistics wins wars. I know that, and we are working it. Um, and it's we're in a good place because the rest of people that do this, they gotta re- rely on a foreign supply chain. Even in some cases, a communist supply chain with literally fabrics that are made by communists who, you know, have a dictatorship in their country and they're paying people, you know, $1 a week to make the material. So <laughs> this is like a strategic for America. Strategic for America. That's why we're doing it. Could we, hey, could we freaking cut some corners and up that profit margin by whatever? Sure, we could, but we're freaking not going to. So if you want some, if you wear clothes, then you might want to get your clothes from a strategic partner of yourself, and that is us at Origin USA. (laughs) What up? I got nothing else for that, man. Dirt to the shirt, baby. Um... We, if you're also looking for clothes to say represent the path, you can find those on Jocko Store, JockoStore.com. We got discipline equals freedom. We got um, take the high ground mm. on there still. Um, I like how you're co-opting some of Echo's phrases. You're kind of like you're 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 utilizing them. Uh-huh. You know, not totally. Uh, uh, copying them 100%, but sure. you, you're catching the vibe and you're putting your K Dog spin on it. Hey, I've been watching the master work from the corner over there, bro. 
Shout oh, out Echo dang. Charles. Um, yeah, man. So got all that going on at JockoStore.com. Also have a T-shirt subscription from the big dog Echo Charles called The Shirt Locker, mm-hmm. where he makes rad um, shirts with layers from the podcast. Yeah. So if you're if you're about those layers, if you listen to the podcast, you're <laughs> like, yes, like I'm about the layers. Check out the shirt locker. Echo's cranking out a new shirt every month with a different layer from the podcast presented on them. So you're, um, you, both of you are wearing dude, a shirt right, locker shirt right now. Check the it out. Sog, the Random. SOG t-shirt. We represent, right? Mm-hmm. We, we come here to, to get after it right. and we're representing that, right? Yeah. And so... <laughs> me and Echo like sometimes show up wearing the same shirt. Today, me, Dave Burt showed up rocking the um, SOG shirt, which yep. is legit. The SOG support. So Echo showed it to me. He's like, hey, it's approved for, and I said, hey, man, we can't be running around just throwing SOG onto a t-shirt and being good with that any more than you can just throw a trident on a shirt and be like, oh, yeah, I'll just represent. So... The way we got around that is by putting support on there. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, like when you, if you're, if you're, maybe you support a local biker gang, but you're not in the biker gang, but you got friends, you can wear that biker gang stuff, but you got to have support on there. You're, cause you're not trying to claim at you, all. You so don't, we're not trying to claim SOG, nope, nope. but we freaking support SOG 100%. 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so all that's going on at uh, JockoStore.com. Yeah. Uh, subscribe to this podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. We also have Jocko Unraveling, and that's with Daryl Cooper, D.C. We just did one about Afghanistan. That was kind of the lead up to this one a little bit just because we were debriefing what happened on Afghanistan, and, and clearly there's some military incompetence that has risen up in the ranks and we started to address that on on Jocko unraveling with Daryl Cooper got the grounded podcast which we haven't done in a while and warrior kid podcast I know I gotta get back on that one so subscribe to those check them out also we have Jocko underground Jocko underground.com we have a a secondary podcast where like I started off talking today about how we talk about psychology on that one quite a bit because that stuff interests me and that stuff also helps you understand the world. And if you understand the world and you understand people, you can be a better leader, you can be a better person, you can be a better mom, dad, whatever. Yet it didn't quite, some of those subjects don't quite fit into this podcast. So we made Jocko Underground, jockounderground.com. And that's that podcast is like a little reward for support because we wanted to create a alternative, an alternative platform in case these platforms, which they haven't caused any problems yet, they're, hey, we're on board, we're here, we appreciate it, we appreciate the platforms, but you can't put all your reliance on something that you have no control over, and we don't really have any control over these large platforms, so we wanted to make something just in case, hey, we'll be here, but just in case things get wild, we got the jockounderground.com, so thanks, if you wanna subscribe to that, it costs $8.18 a month, if you can't afford that, look, we still want you in the game. Email assistance at jockounderground.com. Appreciate that. We got a YouTube channel where we put up this video. You can see the new SOG t- Underground or SOG her- Shirt Locker t-shirts on there, which is cool. Subscribe to that. And also Origin USA if you want to watch what's going on. At Origin, strategic partner of America. You can go to Origin USA. Check that out. Psychological Warfare made an album. 
telling Echo, helping Echo, Charles, get through some moments of weakness. Maybe he needs one for, you know, coming to work. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely check out Psychological Warfare. Very legit, though. Very legit. Flipside Canvas, Dakota Meyer. If you want to hang cool stuff on your wall, check that out. Books, new book coming out, Final Spin. Dave, what's your assessment? Read it. It's so good. And stand by for the audio book. There's some. Oh, yeah. So on the audio, if you get the audio book of that, I read the audio book. And then we did, Dave and I did about an hour conversation about just a review talking about the characters, the character development, the lack of character development, the plot development, the lack of plot development, the words used, the lack of words used, just all yeah. these things that uh, will will definitely be interesting. And it's it's been amazing so far. The books the books coming out. You should do like a virtual book signing or something. It would be cool to get that out there. I think I am doing a virtual book signing, and I'm not 100% sure where. And And actually, check this out. Speaking of virtual book signing, in November, I'm gonna do two Jocko Lives. Jocko Lives, I'm gonna do one in, looks like San Diego, California in November, and then Austin, Texas in November. I think those are the only dates. Look, things are wild right now with the the COVID and the protocols and all this stuff, and people are really sketched out, especially some of the, some of the places you can give, you can do these events, some of them have whatever. They're freaked out about it, so we found some places that are down for the cause, so we're gonna do a gig. I'm gonna do a gig, Jocko Live, November in San Diego and November in Austin, Texas. So keep an eye out for that. It'll be an intro to Final Spin. It gives you time to read it. The book does not take long to read. So you'll be able to get the book, get the book when it comes out, November 9th, and then by the time November 13th or November 20th, which I think are the dates on those two, I'll be there. And you can ask me questions about it. I'll talk about some uh, some of where all that came from the darkness in my brain. Uh, That's Final Spin. Leadership Strategies and Tactics Field Manual. The Code, the Evaluation, the Protocols. Discipline equals Freedom Field Manual. Way of the Warrior Kid, one, two, three, four. Mike and the Dragons, About Face by Hackworth. Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership. Check out these books if you like books. If you don't like books, get the audiobooks. That's my recommendation. Echelon Front, we have a leadership consultancy. Leadership is the solution. What's the problem? The leadership is the solution. Well, what's the problem? Leadership is the solution. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And that's what we will tell you. And that's what we will teach you at Echelon Front. Go to echelonfront.com. Look, if you want to come to one of our live events, the next live event that we have is in Las Vegas. The Muster, October 28th and 29th. Two days. It was a deep dive into this information. We also have field training exercises and... We have a thing called EF Battlefield where we go and tour battlefields. Check out all that stuff. Go to events at echelonfront.com if you want us to come work with your company. Same thing. Um, We also have an online training academy called Extreme Ownership Academy. Extremeownership.com. This stuff is not easy. And you don't get good at it by reading a book and be like, oh, cool, I'm good to go. It doesn't work that way. You need to work at it continually. Go to ExtremeOwnership.com. Come and ask me a question on there. I'm literally live. How long are we on there for today? An hour and a half? Yeah. Hour and 20 minutes, I guess. Yeah. Dave and I are responding to your questions. Leif is on there. Jamie's on there. Like, we are there. JP's on there. You want to ask us a question? Come and ask a question. Live. 
and it's not crowded, you will get your question answered. How's that? Extremeownership.com. If you want to help service members, active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. She is helping all kinds of people get through all kinds of struggles. Go to americasmightywarriors.org if you want to check that out. And if you want more of my lengthy lectures, which today was absolutely one of them, you want you want to hear Carrie's chiming in. You want to hear Dave's analytical appraisals. You can find us on the interwebs, on Twitter, on the gram, on Facebook. Echo is that Echo Charles, but he's not here today, so don't follow him. Instead, check out K Dog. What is it, K Dog? Carrie Helton. Carrie underscore Helton. You couldn't get Carrie no underscore Helton. I tried. I hit the guy up and everything. No response. He denied you. Oh, you were trying to make that social media move. 100%, man. Give me my name, bro. <laughs> is he? Is his name Kerry Helton, too? Yeah, yeah. All one word. And uh, yeah, I shot him a message. I was like, you know, very civil. Hey, yeah. dude. Uh, we, You know, interested in your handle. Uh-huh. Is that something I could get off you? He's like, that's my name, bro. No response, dude. Yeah. Seen. Left me on red. It hurts. But you can find me at Kerry underscore. Left Helton. me on red. Left me on red. So had read the message yep. and just. No so response. my kids harass me because I do that in real life. <laughs> <laughs> like they're talking and I just don't respond and walk away. And they say, oh, you're going to leave me on red. Wow. Yeah. Nice. And I, I think I do that fairly regularly. I mean, you've done it to me. Oh, for there sure. you go. 100%. 100%. <laughs> Dave, can you relate to this? No. Dave, I left you on red before. <laughs> I try not to interact too much, <laughs> but sure. Right actually, actually, you just sent me. A f- I was like stupid busy over the last few days, and you, I, I, I just remember that you sent me some texts that were absolutely left on red. <laughs> uh, and then Dave Burke at David R Burke, um, and look. Thanks to all the men and women out there right now in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines who are competent leaders who are holding the line in a violent and unpredictable world. And also thanks to our competent police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. You have an incredibly difficult job. But you keep us safe and we appreciate it. And everyone else out there, open up your mind. Don't be the person that is loath to accept contrary evidence to what you already believe. Don't be that person. Don't get stuck in that rut. Open your mind. Free your mind. And become better by continuing to always absorb new information. In fact, look for it, seek it out, and keep getting after it. And until next time, this is Dave and Carrie and Jocko, out.